Operation Red Pill. The only podcast hosted by Truthfully Armed, where we take you beyond conspiracy theories to the heart of the conspiracy itself. I'm Jason Spears with my co-host, Christopher Dean. Let's do it. Join us as we go behind enemy lines to answer the tough questions facing the thinking believer as we discuss in this week's Intel Briefing. Who needs God when we have evolution? Has Darwinism put God out of a job? Is evolution really the death nail to Christianity's creation-based worldview, or does it borrow tools from God's tool shed in order to build its case against him? We're going to talk about this and much more coming up right here on Operation Red Pill, Tough Questions. Welcome back to another segment of Tough Questions, where we aim to provide answers to some of today's most challenging questions facing the thinking believer. But before we get into all of that, Christopher Dean. What is up? Man, how are you doing, son? I'm doing great. It is wonderful to be back in the studio because it's been a minute. Absolutely, man. I am feeling it. I am enjoying it. Feels good to be back behind the mic. Got the cans on the head. I'm happy to just go on ahead and just relax here. I think I can stay here for a little bit. Cans on the head? Well, that's what they call these headphones. They're called cans. Uh, when you, when you're in the biz. Oh. Yeah. Oh. I'm, you, I'm, I'm still new. I'm you're new to new. the game? Yeah, yeah. I, I got you. you know, I will walk you through the things you need to know. Don't worry about it. <laughs> I appreciate that. I appreciate that. But between your cans right now... Whoa! <laughs> that didn't sound appropriate at I all. I thought that's what they were called. No, now you got people envisioning all sorts of problems. I personally don't have cans. <laughs> My goodness, he got fuck one to log into the video chat. <laughs> see, let's see Jason in these cans, baby. I know. What we talk about uh, here? Jeez, I'm a novice. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Uh, dis- despite your relief to be back in the studio, it does look like uh, there's something you want to talk about a little bit. And, you know, I do have something on my mind. I wouldn't mind chatting a bit if you game. Yeah, yeah. Lay it on me. Well, man, let's talk. You ever seen these red balls? What did he say? <laughs> Wait, that was a bad place to pause. That <laughs> <laughs> wasn't where I wanted to pause. Mm. Have you ever seen, go when you're going down the road and you see these higher... High transmission uh, distribution, high voltage distribution lines that transmit electricity. Okay. They have sometimes these red spherical globes that are on there. Spherical globes? Yes. As opposed, Seems redundant, as right? opposed to cubic, it, cu- cubic, cubic globes. globes. We never know cubicle these days. globes? I don't know how, how these objects self-identify. Itself. Right, exactly. I want to be sensitive to the objects. <laughs> so they're spherical globes. Right. These, I want to be clear. These are <laughs> spherical globes. Actual globes that also identify as spherical. Absolutely. Okay, got it. And they're on these <laughs> high-voltage distribution lines. Yeah. You seen those? Yeah. Okay. Do you know what they are? Aren't they to warn aircraft not to fly into them? They actually are not. Really? Yeah. Nor there is a on on top of the um, the towers. No, just the towers, retard. <laughs> on top of the towers, there's actually a beacon light that's red that's used to warn aircraft. That actually makes a lot more sense because the towers would be higher than the wires. They are. So that's used to warn aircraft. But so I what actually, are the red balls for? Well, according to Chappelle. Couldn't resist. <laughs> but for anybody that's seen Chappelle's show, they'll know that reference. Anyone who has not 
sorry about you. I don't know what you've been doing with your life. But I actually found a, uh, we, we had a, 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 um, a winter storm that occurred. And when that happened, they sent out some of these repair guys. Okay. And I had a chance to ask them that question. And so they explained to me what they are, what they're for. Okay. And what they're for is to actually add weight to the line so that it doesn't blow around in the wind. Interesting. That's what I said. I was like, okay, so they got to be isolated inside so that it doesn't conduct, you know, electricity to it and blow up that plastic. Right, right. Uh, which I was like, it's crazy, but they look like kickballs that are impaled with electrical wire. <laughs> By the way, that is such a weird phrase. A kickball? Yeah. I think any male should have a problem with that. Yeah. We should call it something else. I don't know what. I don't have another option, but <laughs> I, I definitely oppose the I am offended by the idea of kickballs. Yeah, it makes me afraid to play now. I'm more upset at the fact that I was really good at it as a kid. <laughs> it's one of my most predominant sports. That's funny. But I digress. So anyhow, yeah, they're used to add weight to the line so that it doesn't uh, blow around in the wind. Okay. Which I was like, that's crazy cool. So my dad listens to this show. Okay. He's the one that told me that they were there to warn airplanes not to hit them. That may be a secondary. No, 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 no. Don't not, just because my dad, it was may a, be. dad, if you are listening, <laughs> <laughs> you led me astray. <laughs> Let's just say it was a good guess. I'll, I'll give him that one. Well, I will. I will. But say, at night, it's not going to work too well. Right. Because they don't light up. Right. And it's. It's interesting, though, because not until this moment did anyone offer me a different option for what they're there for. Really? Yeah. That's that's wild. Huh. You know, that kind of reiterates the point that I was going to make. I'll make it here in a minute, actually. Um, I'll emphasize a little bit later. But it's funny how, how often everyone seems to have questions. Yeah. You know, I called my nephew up the other day, and uh, he is a student right now at OSU in the architectural department. Okay, that's cool. Yeah, I called him up and I said, yo, nephew, got a question for you. Doing a little independent research, I've come across some interesting facts that's got me inquisitive-like. And he's like, oh, crap, why did I pick up the phone? <laughs> it's you, uncle. I'm like, yes, yes, here, listen, you know, you're my resident expert in architecture. <laughs> and what I need to know, son, is this. Are there key types of structurally important architectural stones? He goes, huh? <laughs> I said, well, I've just noticed in some of the research we've been doing for these various episodes, you have the cornerstone. Okay. Capstone. Yeah. You have the keystone, which sits at the very top, and an arch. Yeah. Like, these are three distinct types of stones. Mm-hmm. Is there a list? Because I'm starting to think there might be a list of, of keystones that we don't know about. Right, right. So what did he say? He told me, he goes, contact the architectural department. <laughs> and I was like, brilliant. Brilliant. He's like, call them. You tell them your question and whoever answers the phone, they're going to redirect you to the appropriate sub department. Okay. They can answer that question for you. I didn't know you could do that. That's what I loved. The fact that there is someone out there that you can ask a question and get an answer from. And it's not Jeeves. Not Google. Right. But it's this, the it, what it really highlights is the psychological um, characteristic or tension that happens when you have a question and it remains unanswered. 
Okay. Right. And I'm uh-huh. a very inquisitive person. So I have a lot of questions. And one of the most frustrating things for me is to have a question and not know where I can go to get an answer. Okay. Right. That annoys me. So knowing that there are places I can go to get answers to questions is great. Did you know this quick sidebar? Did you know you can request the scientific papers from the people that wrote them? No. There was, I saw there was a post from a scientist that said they don't actually get anything when you subscribe to a website and okay. pay to get access to scientific papers. The okay. scientists get nothing for that. Okay. So if you reach out to the individual scientist that actually wrote the paper and say, hey, I was interested in this. Can you send me a copy of it? They are ecstatic to send you their work. Do you directly. have to pay? Nope. So what do you mean you said they get nothing? They don't get anything from like the subscription websites or whatever, which is where people typically get access to scientific papers. Okay. So they, they didn't get no financial retribution. Right. They just submit them and then whatever publishing house, are, are they publishing houses for websites? I don't know. I was still stuck on retribution. I don't think that that was the right word. <laughs> so whatever they're called, they take all of the money. So the scientists are like, Hey, if people want the information directly from us, they're more than happy to do it. Fascinating. Yeah. I think I'm going to start availing myself to that too. Yeah, you should. You know, but here's what it highlights for me, dude, is the fact that everybody has questions. Yeah. You know, I'm not the only one. What do you mean? <laughs> exactly my point. I rest my case, Your Honor. And getting those answers is so important. And these are just everyday questions. You know, if, if we didn't all have questions, Alexa, Google, and the other lady that I ain't going to mention. So, so she doesn't go <laughs> off. Um they would they be out of a job. Yeah. Well, we're constantly asking things. Those are mundane questions. What do you do when you have much more difficult questions? You know, you got to find a place that you can go. The library. Yeah, that would be a cop out. I'm going <laughs> to say you come here. Come so, Operation Red Pill. That, yeah, that's what I meant. Yeah, I know. The library of Operation Red Pill. Ah, yes. We just failed to adequately articulate which right, library. Right, right. The audible you. library of Operation Red Pill. <laughs> right. You come here, <laughs> you, you you dive in, you look for the episodes <laughs> called Tough Questions, and you listen up. Yeah, yeah. Because that way we're going to deal with these questions that you hate being asked. Like, who would ask that question? And we're going to do just that. We're going to do that this week. We're going to hammer this question here, this one that says... Who needs God when we have evolution? That's a tough question. It's one of those questions that I hate. Okay. I really don't like this question because normally you don't get it phrased just just like this you know it comes in a couple different varieties it does it does you know normally the other varieties are offensive because they assume a correctness to the fact that evolution is valid and an implied incorrection to whatever stupid belief you have that's contrary to evolution right you understand what i'm saying Uh uh-huh and so you might get the question you know why do you believe in god we we know evolution is true or you might just get the flat out statement i believe in evolution yeah, I mean, I've heard all all types. Right, it comes at you a few different ways. Right, but these are normally the elements: evolution is true, Christianity's false, and you're an idiot. Yes, 
<laughs> Those are the three main <laughs> ingredients of that. Those are all the things that are implied, no matter how they're phrased. Right. And that's what makes it so irritating is normally it's done in an environment where you also have to be very, very controlled. Yes. And like you, you, you pick, you pick all places like this. You pick when I'm in front of a police officer to ask me a question like that. It's crazy. <laughs> Why can't you ask it three seconds ago when no one's around? I go bust you in your forehead. <laughs> Not that the Bible would. I was going to say that's not very Christ-like. <laughs> that's what I was going to say. Not not that the Bible would advocate for such a response, but still, it's kind of what you want to do, right? Yeah. And <laughs> it's funny. You know, when you get asked those questions, there's a, I don't want to call it a checklist, but there's almost an immediate a, a continuum uh, of decisions that have to be made immediately. How do you mean? Well, couple things you have to go through as soon as you're asked a, a question you know you have to discern what's really being asked yes right didn't Ravi said that it was um to answer the questioner and not just the question exactly yeah you know so immediately that requires a measure of emotional control yes right and then it requires the ability to assess what is and even more importantly what is not being stated like reading between the lines Yes, but you, you can't just read and insert. You have to be aware of both sides of that. Okay. You understand what I mean? Uh-huh. If somebody comes up to you and they're like, look, I don't really believe in the idea of God. Okay. Did they say that there's no proof or justification for the belief in God? No. What did they say? That they didn't believe. Exactly. So you have to be able to do that. I gotcha. You okay. have to be able to look at, at both. But you also do have to be able to understand things that are implied, even if they're not stated. Okay. So there's there's a not just an art, there's also a science to being able to discern what's really being asked, right? Step yes. two is you have to determine why that particular question might be asked, especially at that particular time. Interesting. Right. You know, questions like you said, questions are asked by people and people have uh, complex motivations for why they ask certain questions, which may not actually be very apparent uh, considering how the, the, the question is asked or phrased. Right. So you have to kind of dig into that. And then the third thing you have to do is you have to place the question within its proper conceptual and logical framework. Yes. That's a lot of work. It is. You, you have to do that pretty quickly when you're asked a question. And it takes some training. It takes practice to learn to acquire that skill set and then to do it in short order. Right. But it's it's necessary. You have to try to identify the main topic and any important subtopics that relate to that question that you were asked. You know, you want to assess whether the format or structure of the question reveals any logical fallacies of the questioner. Mm -hmm. You know, and then see if the question betrays the questioner's worldview. Like it's self-refuting. Yeah, or if maybe, okay, you can only ask that question if you believe in this type of a concept. Okay. There's a lot wrapped up into it. I, l I like to think of, I mean, when we talk about logical fallacies and stuff, um, like Wing Chun, isn't that what Ip Man used? Mm -hmm. Bruce Lee had a variation of Wing Chun, right? Mm -hmm. Well, he was taught Wing Chun first. Bruce Lee was. And then, yeah, he developed Juke King Do after that. Okay. He was taught Wing Chun and I think a couple other forms of Kung Fu. Okay, I got Before you. he developed his own style. And you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it utilizes like your opponent's momentum a lot of the case, a lot yeah. of the time, right? So I was thinking about this and there's so many logical fallacies and you just went through what seems like this really cumbersome way of even just being able to answer a question. Well, I didn't even deal with answering. I just dealt with assessing the question. <laughs> just assessing the question. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. 
Well, it seems cumbersome, but if you really nail those, those couple, cause you listed three things, mm-hmm. you nail those things and you don't have to be familiar with every question that everyone might ask you at any point in time. Right. Like you just learn the couple things and then you allow that to work for you and use the, the questions momentum to, to use the martial arts analogy to, to allow you to properly assess and defend parry block, whatever you need to do in, in the midst. So right. it might seem cumbersome at first, but really developing that foundation in the beginning really makes navigating communication and questions much easier after that. Absolutely. And I, I think it's, you're, you're spot on. It's absolutely important and critical to be able to do that. Cause you know, put yourself on the other side of that. Have you ever asked a question and a person immediately responds to you, but their response is aimed at what they thought you were asking and it's not what you were asking. Yes. You ever had it where you asked a question and a person responds back and they didn't even really hear what you asked. Yeah. Yeah. How does it, <laughs> how does it make you feel? It's frustrating. Yeah. It is. Especially if you're a person who's careful on how you phrase your questions. Right? You, yeah. You're phrasing a question to get an idea across and you're hoping that the person who hears it is savvy enough to hear what you ask. And to respond back in kind. Yeah. So these skills are, are, are really important for proper communication. Yes. And it's it's necessary for proper communication uh, that's not necessarily related to complex, sensitive, or provocative topics. Right. Just normal, everyday conversation requires this type of attention. Absolutely. So I, I, I agree with you. You know, if you're able to start mastering those three, you know, discerning what's really being asked, determining why that particular question might be being asked and place the question within its proper conceptual logical framework, it puts you way ahead of the game. Yeah. On being able to respond appropriately. And reduces the chances of miscommunication. Yes. And that's critical because the enemy likes to play in that sandbox. He likes to get people all worked up in their emotions off of something that they imagine was asked, wasn't really asked, or they're processing a question through some part, uh, you know, of their mind or their emotions and not necessarily looking at the logical component of it, not recognizing, hey, this question was asked and it's got its own. It doesn't even work as a question. Yeah. I remember there's a really dope scene in uh, the West Wing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, where um, the president's chief of staff was getting interviewed. He was like on a rope line or something. And this reporter asked him a question. And he goes, I can't accept the premise of that question and moves on. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> I didn't know you could respond back to questions like that. What is a, what is a premise? <laughs> what, did, what did he say? <laughs> it's, a, it's such a power move, but, but it works. Like, it's not just a deflection. Like, right. Like, I had to go back and find out what a premise is. Yeah. And then understand the structure, not just of of uh, questions, but the fact that questions are based off of um, psychological arguments. Uh huh. And I was like, oh, there's this whole world. And we, we it, dive into that at another time. Right, right, right. But I was like, you know, it opened up this whole can of worms of it's important to understand how to articulate a question. And it's equally important to understand how to respond back to a question. Yes. Right. So we were talking here uh, about where we left off where we took this wonderful little tangent. We were talking about worldviews for a moment. You know, you want to see if the question betrays the questioner's worldview. That may be a term that people aren't readily familiar with. Okay. You know, the worldview basically is how you see the world. And it's based off of typically uh, 
religious systems of thought. Okay. There are two predominant types of worldviews that help to explain reality. All right. What are they? Well, you have natural worldview and a supernatural worldview. Okay. Now, since we're talking about evolution, science in the view of contemporary outspoken part of the scientific community uh, would basically define science itself is defined as the systematic method of gaining knowledge about the universe by allowing for only naturalistic or materialistic explanations and causes. Okay. All right. So how do we jump to that? Well, we've said there were, <laughs> there were two types. Yeah. There's a natural worldview and a supernatural worldview. Natural worldview accepts only answers based on physics and the material order, which leads to two basic presumptions, naturalism, and materialism. Okay. Now, naturalism is basically the belief denying that an event or object has a supernatural significance, especially the doctrine that scientific laws are adequate to account for all phenomena. Okay. Materialism is a belief claiming that physical matter is the only uh, or fundamental reality that all organisms, processes, and phenomena can be explained as manifestations or interactions of matter. Okay. So basically... Materialism is like matter is all there is. And naturalism is like, there's no such thing as supernatural. Everything's about the natural order. Okay. What were you going to say? Well, I was going to say, these are the ideas that we see really pushed in, in the media and in our schools. Absolutely. Okay. And these two coincidentally lend themselves well to evolutionism. Okay. That makes sense. All right. Now the problem with the above definition of science is that even though naturalistic science claims to be neutral and unbiased, it actually starts with a bias. Okay. It's the idea that only matter and energy exist and all explanations and causes must be directly related to the laws that matter and energy allow. That's a bias. And it sounds like a, a philosophic statement, not a scientific one. Right. Hmm. You know, even if the, the amazingly intricate structure of certain organisms like the, uh, the flagella and bacteria appear to be so complex that they must have a designer. Naturalistic science refuses to accept the idea because the idea of a designer, because that idea falls outside the realm of naturalism or materialism. Okay. That's, that's where you get scientists going. Well, science will eventually be able to explain that or whatever, right? Like the, where it seems science has reached his limit. And I think actually has a limit. Science relies on this kind of ethereal hope that science will eventually explain it. That way we don't need any other explanation. Yeah. And it's not necessarily that science will explain it. It's that science will explain it via natural processes. Okay. I gotcha. That's the key delineation or distinction. Okay. You follow me? Uh-huh. In fact, many scientists have actually claimed that allowing uh, supernatural explanations into our understanding of the universe would cause us to stop looking for answers and just declare, well, it's that way because God did it. Yeah, that's you know, a, a cop-out. Right, this is false, because this leads to the second basic worldview that they're trying to refute. Okay. And that's the worldview of the supernatural. The supernatural accepts answers based on physics and metaphysics, but it's unwilling to restrict itself to the natural order alone and thereby understands that some answers may come from outside the natural order and that the natural order is not sufficient enough to explain all processes, including their origin. Okay. Naturally, I'm an advocate of a supernatural worldview. 
Yeah, it seems to make a lot more sense. Kind of seems like a, a pun for me to say naturally. <laughs> naturally. I'm, I'm more of the supernatural. supernatural right. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, but supernaturalism leans itself to creationism. And obviously creationism is what the biblical record is based on. That's right. what it testifies to. Yes. You know, if an idea is not testable, repeatable, observable, and falsifiable, it's not considered scientific. The denial of supernatural events limits the, the depth of understanding that science can have and the types of questions that science can actually ask. Interesting. Right? So this is why it's important for us to make a distinction between the two types of scientific study, which will help us better understand the limitations of naturalistic presuppositions in science. Okay. Now, here's what's cool. I didn't know this growing up. You hear this term science, right? Uh-huh. And you immediately in your mind, you get an idea of what that is. I didn't know that there are two basic types of science. Okay, what are they? There's operational science and historical science. Interesting. Operational science is what they call observational science. Okay. It's a systematic approach to understanding uh, that uses observable, testable, repeatable, and falsifiable experimentation in order to understand how nature commonly behaves. Okay, like real-time stuff. Yeah. So this is kind of, this is what we encounter in school for the most part. You know, okay. you go to the lab, you got to do your lab work, come up with your hypothesis, test it, all of that stuff, right? Okay. Then there's historical science. And this is interpreting evidence from the past based upon a presupposed philosophical point of view. Basically, this deals with origins. Hmm. Two different types. Yeah, you don't hear that very often. No, and you're not really taught to make that cognitive distinction so that you understand what you're dealing with. Interesting. See, operational science is a type of science that allows us to understand how, let's say, uh, DNA codes work, right, for proteins and cells. It's a type of science that's allowed us to cure and treat diseases, put a man on the moon. Or not. <laughs> build satellites and, and, and telescopes and, and make products that are useful to humanity, right? Okay. Biblical creationists believe, obviously, that God has created a universe that uses a set of natural laws that operate consistently in the universe. However, understanding how those laws operate is the basis for scientific thinking. Okay. Now, because the past is not directly observable, and it's not directly testable, repeatable, or falsifiable, interpretations of past events present greater challenges than interpretations involving operational science. That makes sense. Right. So neither creationists nor evolutionists uh, can directly observe, test, repeat, and falsify their claims from an empirical standpoint. That makes sense. Because we're all claiming something that we weren't witness to and we can't recreate. Right. Doesn't mean that there's not strong proof for, for one of those two views. Right. It just means it won't follow empirical. It won't necessarily, I don't want to say it won't follow empirical because there may be some empirical evidence, but it's not going to follow the operational science trajectory. Right. There's okay. different tools that you have to use in testing at that point. Because okay. you still want to look for truth. Right. I mean, because that's what we're after. Right. Because each of those are based on certain uh, philosophical assumptions about how the earth began. Right. Uh huh. Naturalistic evolution assumes that there was no God at all. 
and biblical creation testifies that there was a God who created everything in the universe. Right. There's, there's a major difference. A little bit. <laughs> now, with operational science and historical science, there's also operational theory and historical theory. Okay. Ever heard of that? No. Right, me neither. I want my money back. <laughs> so operational theory is, is an explanation of a set of facts based on a broad set of, again, repeatable and testable observations that is generally accepted within a group of scientists. Okay. Historical theory is an explanation of past events based on the interpretation of evidence that is available in the present. Interesting. Now, evolution's been elevated for God knows what reason to the status of an operational theory. And even beyond that, it basically enjoys the status of a fact in the opinion of most of the established scientific community. And it's not necessarily due to the strength of the evidence, but pretty much in spite of it. That's interesting. Right? Because evolutionary ideas are, are interpretations of past events, right? Yeah. They're not as well-founded and as testable uh, as scientific theories like Einstein's theory of relativity or Newton's theory of gravity. So these theories offer predictable models and the ability to conduct experiments to determine their validity in different circumstances. Right? Mm-hmm. Evolution fits the definition of a historical theory perfectly, but it relies on the assumption of naturalism. Right, because there's nothing about it, even in those that, that believe it and hold, hold that it's true, there's nothing about it that we'd ever be able to witness. Right. You know, in, in the scientific community, it's basically become a theory that's assumed to be an established fact and not an explanation at all, which is really dangerous because evolution is now the prevailing paradigm of not just the, the scientific community, it's like the prevailing paradigm of modern thought. Yeah. Overall. And because of that, scientists mostly have stopped questioning the underlying assumptions that that theory is based upon. Hmm. Which is really, really dangerous. Now, we can't skip over the fact that creationists develop theories too. Okay. Right? It's not just the evolutionists, not just scientists. We do the same thing. Uh, we develop theories in light of, of biblical truth, but they're not as widely accepted, obviously, by the uh, mainstream scientific community. All interpretations or theories of the past are based on assumptions and they can't be equated with facts that are observable in the present. And this holds true for both creationists and the evolutionists. Yeah. I think Frank Turek makes the point that we're all looking at the same evidence. Right. A lot of times it seems like it's this stack of evidence versus this stack of evidence. That's normally how they're presented in arguments. Right. But that's not really the case. Right, the argument's not over the evidence because the evidence is exactly the same. It's over the interpretation of that evidence. Right. And is the interpretation being done honestly or dishonestly? That's that's a question right there. Right. Because you're you're one that actually talks about how science is built on what do you call it? Philosoph what do you philosophic presuppositions? Yeah, the philosophic presuppositional underpinnings to in order to practice science. Yeah, that crap that I can never remember. <laughs> so, yeah, science itself doesn't tell the truth. What the deuce? Trust trust the science. Trust the science. The science doesn't. It, it can't be truthful. Nor does it lie. Here we go. One of these tautologist <laughs> statements. Scientists ah, do. That's the distinction. That's the distinction. It's not yeah. science. Because science is just the method. Right. So we have scientists that look at evidence and they can either be truthful about it. 
They can make honest mistakes or they can be accurate. So wait, truthful, <clears throat> honest mistakes are accurate. Truthful, honest mistakes, or they can be, or they can or be they can wrong. My, my bad. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> See, people can make mistakes. Speak for yourself. I am. I'm a people. Wow. <laughs> Not a person. You're a people. I'm a people. That's funny. But no, there's even, um, there's lists, especially in, in regards to evolution list of quote unquote discoveries mm-hmm. that weren't necessarily on, on the up and up. Shut your mouth. No. So I have some listed here. We have the, the Piltdown man, Ernest Heckles or Haeckel's evolution embryo, the okay. N- Nebraska man. You might've heard some of these like the Neanderthal man, Lucy, the hominid or Ors man. The um, Neanderthal is about all I got. Yeah. So you, I mean, we talk about Neanderthal and I think there's even, I mean, there's scenes in movies where it's discussed in a classroom, like it's real. Mm-hmm. Everything that I just listed has been scientific, scientifically proven wrong. But it's still being taught. It is. Not all of them. So the, like the Piltdown man, they actually like dyed the bones and adjusted the way, I think grinded them down a little bit. So they looked. Shut up. No, and, and in order to intentionally misrepresent what they were trying to explain. And so was Piltdown Man like one of these landmark discoveries where we're like, oh, now we know evolution is true. We, we just found. Yep, that's exactly it. And it, wow. I think it took them like 10 years, 10 years of teaching that this proves evolution before they were like, actually, it was like a human skull and a pig jaw or something like that. Really? Yeah. 10 years? Mm-hmm. That's crazy. It is crazy. Then we have uh, Ernest uh, Haeckel's evolution embryo, and uh, he was drawing out like the, the progression of the embryos, and he okay. had textbooks. Like There's textbooks with his evolution or his, um, I guess, evolution embryo uh, chart. Diagram. Wow. Diagram. Thank you. Okay. So people started looking, looking at these and like comparing them. And he's like, he, he's like, oh no, I was honest about all of them. And this is where I got the information. But like his dog embryo was identical to a human embryo at a particular stage. Okay. And not, not just similar. It was the exact same picture. And they were like, what about this? So he actually got uh, a group of scientists to come against him and, and discredit him because all of his work was false. But I bet you the damage is not undone. It's not. Just because he's declared false. Right. They don't take the textbooks out of school when something is proven wrong. They just keep teaching it because it's part of the system. They don't even rip out the page. Right. They don't redact it. I mean, have you ever heard that Neanderthal is not, can't be right, can't be true? I I saw Neanderthal in Night of the Museum, one, two, and three. He was there. (laughs) He was the one like, ooh, 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 ooh. Yeah, he was there. So- it's real. I saw it on TV. <laughs> yeah, but it's this discovery. Now, some of these, like Piltdown Man and the evolution embryo, were intentional lies. Okay. Some of them, I think that the Nebraska Man was an accident. Like, I get it. You, you're excited. You think that you found this thing that proves your theory or whatever, and then later you're found out wrong. Right. But like we were saying, you're, it's not being treated with the veracity is that the right word Uh, i think that works yeah that it should be to be like okay we have to rethink these things well i tell you what if a christian presented an idea supporting supporting creationism 
and then found out that it was flawed, oh, they would be up in arms. <laughs> yeah. I mean, burn the school down. Right. With, with the books. Right. This is witchcraft. <laughs> Absolutely. Put the Christian inside who came up with this. And burn it down. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. But like, so even though they're honest mistakes, one of the big ones is this Orseman hominid discovery. Okay. Ended up being a donkey. Modern day donkey skull. Hmm. And that flew in the scientific community? Oh, yeah. They were like, look, look at this. This proves evolution. Now, see, here's my problem, <laughs> because these are great examples. And this is not to denigrate the entire scientific community, but this is a great example of how you could have a falsifiable find that supports a claim and that claim be purported throughout mainstream scientific community. And then you get hit with wokeism of today that asks the question, what, you don't believe in science? Right. As though science, and we're putting that in quotations because when they say science, they don't just mean uh, observable, verifiable, testable information. Right. They mean the entire claims of mainstream scientific community, no matter how far out. Yeah. You're required to believe that because it's under the banner of science. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. No matter how outlandish it is. Yeah. And I will, I'll credit, I mean, the scientific community for proving all of these wrong. Like Good point. Whether they were accidents or, or on purpose, there are scientists that were going, you know what? I'm going to question the science. I don't know if this holds up. And, and these, and there's a list of several more uh, on a link, we'll, we'll put it on the show notes, uh, of, of these mistakes. And they were... People who questioned the science were able to find out that these claims were either intentional lies or honest mistakes. Hmm. That's great. But that flies in the face of what you were saying. Trust right. the science. Trust the, trust the science. Because again, science doesn't tell the truth, nor does it lie. Scientists are the ones that do that. Right. Science is a study of the facts. Yeah. That's really all it is. I mean, really, the term comes from Scientia. Whoa. That's right. sounds sexy. Well, I was going (laughs) to say it sounded like Cynthia right until you said that. Oh, oops, my bad. That's too late now. uh, (laughs) Way too late. (laughs) But uh, that's the Latin Latin, uh, word that we get science from. I think it basically means knowledge. Okay. So science isn't necessarily bad. No. Yeah, you're studying the facts. I mean, in fact, (laughs) no 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 pun intended there. But what I found so freeing was the notion that God authorized scientific discovery. How do you mean? When God told Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, to be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth, right? Okay. That subdue part is huge. Because in that, you have to know things in order to subdue. Right. So he's commissioning scientific discovery of your environment. Learn, discover all the stuff that I've done, I've put into your environment that I've placed you in, and then master it. That's dope. Right? You don't hear it taught that way. No. But as soon as I found that out. A lot of times you hear subdue and it's like shotguns. That's not- <laughs> Bam, gotcha. <laughs> ah, yeah, you got subdued, baby. <laughs> yeah, well, before there was a need for shotguns, because that would have come after the fall. 
Right. There's still an absolute need to subdue, to take full dominion over. Right. And if you're going to reign, and if you're going to reign in likestead of the king that's authorized you to reign, then you have to know a lot in order to do that. Yeah, I would agree. Hence, scientific discovery. I like that. And I'm like, great. But then it, it challenges this notion because you're taught that science and God are are the lockheads with each other. Mm-hmm. And they are not. Not at all. No, God is the author of, I don't want to say he's the author of science, but he's the author of that which science discovers. Does that make sense? Uh-huh. So I'm right there with you. Science cannot be done without philosophical presuppositions. Right. And the philosophical assumptions that scientists make can actually dramatically impact the scientific conclusions that they draw. Yeah, they absolutely do. Right. And that's important, especially when we're getting these conclusions. Mm-hmm. And we got to ask some of those questions, you know, what were your philosophical assumptions when you did your experiment? <laughs> yeah. You know, we have to educate ourselves on that, right? Got to. So all of that <laughs> backdrop. <laughs> all right. Let's make that our springboard. All right. That lets us dive into this sticky topic. All right. What is evolution? That's one of those questions you're just like, you know, how do you define it? Well, the general theory of evolution is basically this idea that single celled organisms gained new genetic information over billions of years and eventually arrived at, quote, higher life forms, such as man. Right. Yeah. Basically from from a single celled organism to multi celled organism over a whole bunch of time. Right. It's interesting real quick because we had this moment of silence after like what is how do you define evolution right it's interesting i think it happens because it's assumed so often that people don't think about it like myself included like i kind of just like i know what it is no you don't but we don't clearly (laughs) you were asked what it was you didn't say anything you only say nothing fair enough but (laughs) Matter of fact, this is what you said. I got it on court document records. I'm going to have a stenographer read it back to you. Ready? This is exactly a direct transcript of what you said when asked what the definition of evolution is. Look at this. Very articulate. Yeah. Anyway. No, I was going to say, because it's not often thought about because it's so often assumed. Mm-hmm. So you're like, yeah, you know what it is. But somebody asked, well, well what is it? Well, now you got to open a box. It's all dusty because we don't think about it that often because we're told to just assume that it's true. Absolutely. That's part of the the cognitive programming that occurs with this. Right. But you basically have three different types of evolution. Okay. When most people hear the term evolution, they pretty much come up with the, the first one that I'm going to talk about here, which is Darwinian evolution. Okay. All right. That That's the most common understanding of that term evolution. And this suggests that all species are related and gradually change over time via, uh, what's that phrase? Natural selection. Okay. Right. In modern times, it's actually been expanded to include additional mechanisms like genetic mutation as well. But that's the, that's the most common understanding of evolution. Then you have what's called theistic evolution. All right. And this is where a person tries to harmonize Darwinian evolution with biblical theology. This Sounds like a problem. No, not at all. This is, <laughs> I can harmonize both of these worlds and 
basically turn a trick into a treat. (laughs) So (laughs) what you suggest here is that God is using Darwinian evolution as an ongoing means of creation. Okay. Then you have the third type of evolution, which is called directed evolution. Okay. And this suggests that man is in the driver's seat and is using technologies such as grain technologies, you know, genetics, robotics, artificial intelligence, nanotech uh-huh. to produce the next step in human development. So you mean like transhumanism? Exactly. Okay. This is where that comes from. So see, these are three basic types, Darwinian evolution, theistic evolution, and directed evolution. Okay. Now, all of this can get really, really confusing real quick, especially when you're you're using a term that's pregnant with all sorts of meaning really glibly in order to apply to so many things and situations. That's the thing that bothers me. That irks a you? A lot. Yes. Okay. It's actually the uh, equivocation fallacy that happens. Oh, that sounds like a smart people term. <laughs> like, what is that collar over here? I see. <laughs> equivocation fallacy. But the equivocation fallacy is when you use the same term to describe two different things. Hmm. Without making the distinction? Without making the distinction. Yeah. It's so, like the English language is built on that. Hmm. Interesting. That's crazy. <clears throat> Makes you not want to have breakfast anymore. Oh, no, I'm definitely going to eat that. <laughs> I'm going to go to the bank and make sure I get my breakfast to eat on the bank <laughs> while I check the bank. <laughs> Three different yeah. uses of bank <laughs> as I watch an airplane that's banking. Yeah. Oh, that's four. But but see, at least context helps explain yeah. some of what you were saying. Right. Yeah. Now, if I just didn't make a distinction between all of that, and made you think I just went to the same place to do all, yeah, you'd be really confused. Right. I got you. How'd you get money out of applying banking? <laughs> <laughs> hey, top dollar, man. Don't you worry about it. Right. But yeah, so this happens with evolution because the world uses, or at least, I guess you can't say the whole world, at least those in the West, those English-speaking sectors of the world. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know, Mandarin. So in fairness. Okay. English. They use evolution to describe all kinds of things, like the changing of governments, businesses, oh, the changing of language, yeah. technology, music. Dude, yeah, I'm right with you. That gets on my nerves. Like, yeah, I was watching a commercial the other day. I think I want to say it was on Ford and the, the, the new F-150. Okay. And I think their catchphrase was something like, the F-150 has evolved. <laughs> and I was like, How? Right. You had engineers and people that were involved in this process to produce this product. That does not count as evolution according to y'all's definition. Right. Because evolution, the term evolution entered the world to the lexicon, the lexicon to describe this unguided change of biology to go from lower life forms to higher life forms. Right. Undirected change. Undirected change. None of the things that we use the term for are undirected. Oh, I love it when you're watching. Uh, I get this a lot when I'm watching films. You're seeing how they made it. Uh-huh. And like, oh, yes, it's, you know, this process, it just evolved. You know, it was just amazing how all this came together. And I'm like, what? what? Yeah. So, so you guys spent millions of dollars on a project that just randomly put itself together. <laughs> That's what happened. And yeah. it got better. That's yeah. the part I like. It, right. it gets better. <laughs> yeah. Technology. Like, the what is the next iPhone going to be? Did 
do they just wake up and there's a new version, right? Oh, okay, I feel the need to say this. You know, what would be like 45 minutes into this? Okay. I probably should have said this earlier. I don't want people who uh, who advocate for evolution mm -hmm. to think that we're attacking them. Oh, that's a good point. Uh, I, I don't want it to come across like... Um, not, I don't, I don't want to just say being insensitive, but I, I don't want to come across in a, a chauvinistic manner, right? Okay. I get that there are people, even well-meaning people, who genuinely do love love the Lord and believe in the Bible that also endorse the idea of evolution. Mm -hmm. I get that. And I, too, probably hold views that are inconsistent with biblical doctrine. All right? I, I would venture to say pretty much all of us do if we drill down far enough. Right. Um, what a lot of this animated passion comes from is really the idea of evolution and the way that I constantly see it being used. The fact that evolution itself is not something that philosophically is tenable mm -hmm. and the, the fact that evolution is identified as a theory, constantly purported as a fact, not allowed to be questioned in the mainstream. Yes. And is is ultimately being used to dethrone God. That's my issues with evolution. Right. So you see me attacking it. I'm not necessarily attacking the person, nor am I trying to say that people who who um who advocate for evolutionary theory are idiots. I'm not saying that. Right. I'm not saying that I have a huge problem with them, but I do have a huge problem with this idea. Right. So I just want to get that out there. No, that's good. Okay. And and it, uh, wow. What? It just I wasn't very articulate just just then. <laughs> through the through, through the beauty of editing, we'll make sure that you can we make fix me that. sound better than I am. That's what I do. <laughs> but no, it's a really good point because when we talk about the way that the mainstream media or the television talks about government's business, <laughs> language, technology, and music, mm -hmm. can you edit that out? <laughs> <laughs> my mouth was full of pop <laughs> so what was that sound For, if it ends up making it on the podcast tell, tell the listeners what that is it was a straw that moved against the lid of my cup <laughs> I, didn't, it, I didn't intentionally mean for that to happen it sounded like it could have been a very uncomfortable bodily uh, oh no 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 it was no <laughs> digestive issues that was going on that was a straw oh that's great no that's hilarious but back to my point we've talked about propaganda and the satanic control matrix right and when we talk about propaganda it means manipulation and very possibly control right right that's why I, i'm coming at this idea so hard not because i think the people that that talk like this or believe this are stupid, but because if this is propaganda, then they're taking advantage of you. Right. And that's what I don't like. Yeah. Yeah. I'm right there with you. Cause I don't like seeing, I, I don't like it when things are used to, to, um, stealthily tie people up. Right. And to confuse them, place them in mental bondage and do it in a way that they can't even figure out what's happening. Right. Or that it happened, let alone what is happening. Yeah, so that's that's why we're trying to point point this out, like evolution. So I love the fact that governments and business change, that language changes, that we get advancements in technology and music. I think that those progressions are really cool and interesting. 
Right, but they're they don't evolve. Right. They can progress, like you said, perfect word choice. But they don't evolve on their own. You know, governments require a whole bunch of committees and a whole bunch of people right. arguing for an obscene amount of time as they waste <laughs> my tax dollars, right? Right. In order to come just to a small measure of change. Yeah. We just recently got rid of daylight savings time. <laughs> and we're none of us are even sure if it's gonna stick. Like this new daylight savings time zone when it comes around, I'm like, are they gonna change it? We're just gonna wa- not? watch our phones and be like, eh. it really didn't change. <laughs> I guess we passed it. That's just for a little bit of change, right? Yeah, right. And it requires all these people. I mean, the the notion that that you can get improve unaided change is like imagining that a tornado goes through a junkyard and produces a 747. Right. Or I like the, uh, an explosion in a printing press creates the dictionary. Same exact thing. Right. It, it doesn't happen. Right. Nowhere in our world do we see that. But when they use this equivocation fallacy, it tricks us into thinking that's that we do see it everywhere. Right. So when we say, oh yeah, the evolution of technology or business or language, we see that term used everywhere. So then when we go to school and they're like, well, this is just evolution of, you know, biogenesis or whatever. Like, okay, well I see evolution everywhere else. It takes that, that barrier out of the way. Right. But it's really false equivocation. It's a logical fallacy. It's not logically consistent because they're actually different things. So let's put it the way the Bible would say it. It's a lie. It's a lie. Yes. Flat out. <laughs> Flat out. It's, it's a, a lie. lie that they're telling you just by constantly repeating what is not true. Right. And while academia does recognize two different classes of evolution, none of those include the intentional progression of a system or reference governments, languages, business, technology, music, or et cetera. So in other words, using the term evolution to apply to the development of a concept or a product is a misuse of that term. Or like you said, a lie. Yeah, don't, be, don't be taking my words back. <laughs> I can quote Spears back to Spears. That is the number one thing you never do. <laughs> we and God are still working that out. I'm, I'm trying to get him to understand. If, we, if our relationship could evolve, <laughs> I'll be right where I need to be. Now, it's great that you mentioned the, the two classes of evolution. I was really shocked to find out that there are two general classes of evolution uh, that recognize evolutionary change, and that's microevolution and macroevolution. Okay. You ever heard any, any of those terms? I have, actually. Okay. Microevolution apparently deals with processes by which organisms exhibit small-scale changes over time that ultimately leads to their prolonged survival, right? Yep. Yeah, I would call that adaptation. Okay. All right, then you have macroevolution, uh, which refers to processes that produce large-scale changes resulting in whole new species. All right, that's like biogenesis. Right. Now, this gets expanded to serve as the basic explanation for the origins of everything from, from planets to people. Right, macroevolution. The macroevolution, right? right? And the problem becomes we can observe... I'm going to put this in quotes, microevolution. <laughs> okay. Okay. We can observe that. You can observe small scale changes in organisms. One of the, the best known examples are the finches. Okay. And you got to be careful where you put consonants. 
and making sure that you pronunciate adequately, right? Okay. Because the Finches almost became something else. <laughs> <laughs> Real easy. That's funny. They almost underwent a microevolutionary change linguistically. <laughs> right. They also came female dogs. So uh, the Finches on, on um, uh, I can't remember that island, Galapagos, Galapagos Island, I, I so. believe, when Darwin was doing some of his early research, mm -hmm. he noticed that there were some structural changes in their physiology. Okay. Like some of them had shorter beaks, others had larger beaks. Gotcha. Okay. That type of stuff happens. Normally, it's the result of uh, environmental factors that help to, oh, I don't want to say contribute. Um, it, it helps to initiate that change in the organism as a response to environmental factors. Okay. We can see that. We can see like the changes in moths, for example. Some of them have different patterns or they've exhibited different patterns over time. Okay. No problem. You know, we do see small scale changes on organisms. Mm -hmm. What we don't see is large scale changes that result in a whole different organism. True. The problem becomes when, okay, well, you did see evolution on a small scale, right? Mm -hmm. And the person agrees. Yep, we saw it. Well, then, fine. Now you know evolution is a real thing. It exists. And we're just going to apply it over here. Yeah, no, I see that all the time. And, yeah. and people directly arguing micro versus macro, going, well, we know micro is a thing, so macro has to be. And I would, I would push back on that. Okay. And the reason I would push back is I have to push back because I know in the, in the, in the back of my mind, I'm still dealing with the question of, is evolution true? And if it's true, then do you need God? Okay. So better make daggone sure it's true. And it better be true throughout, especially if we're going to use it to displace God. Right. So that fuels a little bit of these pushbacks on things. It also feels why in the world have these guys been talking about evolution for the last 54 minutes? <laughs> this is why. Yes. Because it's a very important issue to understand right right so i'm gonna probably push back and go are you seeing microevolution in its truest sense i'm not asking are you seeing change not challenging that uh -huh. but when you say microevolution you're saying small undirected change right i don't know if i could go as far as to say it was undirected okay how do you mean well because i'm gonna, i'm gonna ask the question if an organism has the biological information to exhibit a change, uh -huh. where'd that information come from? Interesting. Okay. We'll talk about that later. <laughs> but that's going to be my, my issue. Okay. That I, I'll, I'll raise a finger on and say, nah. You still have to account for that. Right. Before you can jump all the way, especially all the way to macro evolution and saying that this is how we get to planets. Right. Like one, one example that I think of is the, um, the white and brown rabbit analogy. Have you heard that? No. So that there's a breed of rabbit that can be white or brown, you know, just like people have different colored hair. Okay. But to say they end up moving to a colder climate where it's snowy all the time. Well, then the brown rabbits are seen very easily in the snow. The white ones aren't. So the brown ones get eaten. This is natural selection, which then leads to all of the white rabbits then uh, procreating and creating more white rabbits. Mm -hmm. And now the breed of rabbit that was once brown and white is now just white 
and this is a type of microevolution. Okay. Makes sense. But what's not happening is new information is not being added. That's what you're just, point. yeah, you're just selecting information that's already there. Absolutely. That, that's a, that's a big point. Right. And so I would just say that that would be the barrier between micro and macro evolution. But I would also argue the fact that in addition to that, if you had a species that was, was as diverse to have two different color types. Okay. And one color type is eliminated. Did that species really evolve? No. It lost half of its genetic right, information. It would be devolving, if anything, right? If anything. Even if there was a, um, a biological advantage, it's still not adding to the genetic information. No, it just lost half of it. Right. That'd be a problem. So if, uh, can I talk about dog breeding real quick? I mean, are you an expert in dog breeding? I'm not an expert, but I don't think you have to be. It's that Wing Chun trick, right? Yeah. We're just dealing with logic. We are, but I think you might get ahead of the game just a little bit. Okay, well, that's why I asked. That's why I asked. I'm getting excited over here. Nah, but so. but, but but remember where you're at. Okay, okay. Um, I would like to say, though, that, I mean, we've talked about the the vast saturation of evolution, right. the, the idea, and it's, it's upsetting because even some of the people that I appreciate for being thinkers in the world assume evolution to be true. Like who? I don't assume evolution to be true. You don't. Am I on this list? I wouldn't say you're in the world. You're in the studio. <laughs> and where is the studio? It's in the world. <laughs> <laughs> nah, but go ahead, man. But no, Gad Sad, he wrote this book called The Parasitic Mind that I... There's a dude really called Gad Sad. His name is Gad Sad. Oh, I know he got teased as a kid. Probably. It probably made him sad. What? <laughs> what is he? Unfortunately, is he? he's a Lebanese Jew that escaped, pa I think, Palestine. Okay. So, yeah. he. Oh, here come the thought police. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep. They didn't like that one. So, yeah, I'd say being picked on in school was probably a little bit of an understatement because I'm pretty sure him and his family had to leave the country because they were going to get murdered. Man, that's sad. No it, <laughs> But go ahead. It is. And he's really smart. He deals with uh, um, some social issues. His book, The Parasitic Mind, I think is really good. Okay. Um, but he just assumes evolution. And I think even in the book, he he makes the point that no science is past the point of like rebuttal. Okay. Except evolution. Like later, he's like, but we don't need to to bring up evolution to talk it, about whether or not It really annoys true. me how evolution seems to enjoy that protected status. Yeah. It's like the Canadian goose of, of thoughts. <laughs> right. Like question everything except evolution. Well, we yeah. Just, we just have to assume that one. But even everything won't get air quotes. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, Jordan B. Peterson's another one. Really? I think he's one of the most thoughtful people. Okay. And in, in, that we have uh, in popular culture today. Okay. Which is not nothing. Like, I don't agree with everything that he says, but I love how he's meticulous and intentional and structures his thoughts well. There's not a lot of people that do that as well as he does. Right, right. But again, he's another one that he claims to be an evolutionary psychologist. Hmm. So he just, we pre-assume evolution, and then everything that he reads and thinks about on top of that has to plug into this evolution worldview, which is a, a little bit of a weak link. As right, far as I'm it, concerned. It definitely highlights what you were saying earlier of scientific presuppositions. Yes. And his philosophical, what's the term again? 
philosophic presuppositional underpinnings? Yes, that one. I'm going to get it one day. <laughs> it's all right. You've got several terms that I'm like, Jason, what's that? What's that? <laughs> yeah, but I need that one. I need that in my collection. Polymorphic perversion. Is it? Do I almost have it? No. <laughs> Dang it. Never mind. Moving on. Polymorphic sexual perversion. Sexual perversity. Dang it. Uh, that was a big, important middle section of that term. Anyway. So Man, we whoever's have- listening to this is like, oh my gosh. <laughs> they are on crack. So it's, yes. No, we are not on crack. <laughs> uh, no, we're not. No, we're not. Crack evolved from cocaine. Just on its own. Yeah. I mean, it <laughs> developed. And there were a lot of people that, that played a, a process in it. Yeah. But it not just on its own. <laughs> That's funny. So Bill Nye, Neil deGrasse Tyson, like all of these main. The science he, guy? The science guy. Yeah, he did. Well, that's right. He was arguing uh, Ken, Ken Ham. Ham. Yeah. And that just made me sad for the scientific community and the creationist community. Well, yeah. nope. I don't want to say it like that because it sounds like they're two different camps. The, the evolution, the evolutionist community, the naturalistic community and the supernatural community. Is that, is that fair? Okay. I was going to say the evolution and creationist community. Maybe. Yeah, it was just sad. It was not. It was not a good debate. I think they both did poorly. But again, they just assume these ideas. Mm-hmm. And and with Neil deGrasse Tyson, I think is a really good example of how the idea of evolution is used to dethrone God. Right. Right. Because he's even quoted in saying, "If we find out that all this is just an experiment by aliens, I'm gonna be the only person in the room not surprised." It always shocks me how comfortable people who who advocate for evolution mm-hmm. seem to be with, with aliens and ufology, but they seem to be ardent proponents of the very notion of there being a God. And I'm like, how? Right. It makes, it makes no sense. Like how is there no cognitive space for just the idea of God? Like I told a girl one time who was like, we were getting off in, in, into this whole like evolution atheist type of thing. Uh-huh. I was like, I don't get it. And she's like, well, yeah, I mean, because you believe in God, so you wouldn't get it. I said, no, 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 no. That's not what I, <laughs> why I don't get it. I think it's a bunch of BS. And she was like, why? I said, because there's there's nothing in our world that exists, no technology that didn't have a designer. And everything physical that we know owes its existence to something else physical. Somewhere along the chain. Right. It, which means then that if you're going to get something physical, you couldn't just have a physical a physical catalyst at the very beginning. It'd have to be supernatural. Right. It'd have to be. So it was like nothing adds up for you to just take this concept. <laughs> I was like, I would get it, and I would accept it way better if a person was like, I believe God exists. I just don't like him. Right. I can't stand his rules. Yeah. I was like, makes way more sense. She looked at me, and she was like, hmm. <laughs> I've never heard her put that way. I was like, you can say you don't like his rules all day long. I don't like his rules. Right, no doubt. They suck sometimes. Yeah. Most of the time they suck because <laughs> I'm a fallen creature, yep. right? But uh-huh. the notion that just a God does not exist whatsoever, that is so infantile to me. It is. That is literally like a baby just covering their eyes and being like, you're not here. You don't exist. Right. Because Neil deGrasse Tyson, he's one of those pop atheists, right? People look to him for scientific news and, and what have you. Right. And he makes this statement, you know, about the aliens. I wouldn't be surprised if this is just an alien experiment, right? Mm-hmm. Well, my question 
to Mr. Tyson would be, well, what, even though you, you, you believe that this is possible, that you wouldn't even be surprised if it's an alien race that did all of this. What, <laughs> what if the alien was timeless, <laughs> spaceless, uh, powerful, intelligent, caring? What if this alien meets all of the criterion for God? Right. What if this alien has the name Yahweh? Still don't believe him. Nope. Sounds too much like the Bible. <laughs> I was like, come on. If you're going to make this step and open your mind to believe something in which you have zero scientific evidence for, but absolutely reject any idea or notion of God. It's which, just, you, which, by the way, I don't mean to cut you off, but just to, to, to insert here, which you have more scientific evidence for the right. existence of. Yes. More philosophical evidence for the existence of God. Yeah. Than you do for an alien from Alpha Centauri, which we ain't never been. <laughs> yeah. Or the Pleiades, which we ain't never been. <laughs> yeah. But somehow th this idea saturated culture so much that he's the thinker. He's the guy we look up to. And anyone that believes in God is antiquated. I'm like, come on. Yeah. It's that that annoys me to no end. Yeah. It doesn't work. Oh, it frustrates me because then, I mean, there's like a little level of smugness and arrogance that you see when asked some of these religious themed questions. Mm -hmm. You're like, I, I enjoy uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson. I enjoy his responses to, to various scientific things. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not. Seems like an interesting dude. Right. But I've always been annoyed at how fervently he is a non-proponent for anything spiritual unless it's far out. Yes. That has always annoyed me. Mm -hmm. And again, like a lot of the people on this list or the people that I mentioned, I really enjoy. Like I, I bought some of their books. I'm not disparaging the person. I'm just highlighting the error in this idea that saturated the culture. And it's such a fundamental idea that it creeps into so many different areas. It does. Like when Henry Morris pointed out the fact that evolution has become the de facto religion of the United States and by extension, the de facto religion of the world. I was like, whoa, what do you mean? He goes on to say it's the basic thought of it's the basic prima facie consideration of all modern thought. In other words, all modern thinking starts from an evolutionary perspective. And that influences everything. Yeah. It influences law, politics, uh, school, you know, academia, entertainment, everything. It does. It's no longer a small issue. It's not like one of these tangential things where you're like, nah, I mean, I don't really have an opinion on that. I ain't got a dog in that race. Yes, you do. Right. The entire race is about this. Yep. Because we're talking about the origins of everything. Two basic worldviews. Either you believe everything was created by an intentional designer or you believe it happened on its own. Yeah. That's it. Those are the two camps. That's it. You can find variations within those camps. Mm -hmm. You can find small changes in those camps, but <laughs> they're directed. It's intentional. Yeah, they why there are the distinctive differences between the ideas in those camps, but those are the two basic ideas. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, Cause Henry Morris in his book, the long war against God, I was able to go back through that in preparation for this episode. Okay. That's crazy in and of itself because that is not an easy read. The first time I went through that book, it took me a year. Yeah. You were about to unfriend me in real life. It tried my <laughs> level of patience. And most people say I am not a patient person. I'm like, that's because Christopher used all of it. 
<laughs> I really did. I took it all up for this one book. I'm like, oh my God, we got so many more books to do. Read a page. Right. How can you take a year to read one Just book? Just a page. It was bad. Yeah, it's a hard read. And it took me a while, in all fairness, to, to get through that book. I think it took me like three months or something Okay. Uh, to get through that. It, it wasn't an easy read. I appreciated it when I got to the end. Right. But, well, yeah, I had to work for it. Yeah, but after the year, I was like, why didn't I do this sooner? <laughs> That's like how I felt when I got through it. I was like, oh, this is great. We should do it again. No, we should not. <laughs> but but he mentions, so you, you said that he was talking about how evolution is the uh, prima facie idea in all of culture. Right. He also brings up the point that there's not a single technological advancement that's made because of the theory of evolution. Wow. Yeah. That is a heck of a statement. It is, especially because when, like we were talking about Bill Nye and he was arguing Ken Ham, he was saying that, that religion holds people back from scientific discovery. Yeah, I remember that. And I, I got real upset because I could immediately think of several different people who have gotten Nobel Prizes. Right. That J are ardent believers in, in the Bible. Yeah, J. Warner Wallace uh, in his book, Person of Interest, mm -hmm. highlights that a majority of people that won the Nobel Prize believed in God. Oh, I was pissed when he said it. Yeah. Not I me, mean, not Jay Ward. I was pissed when Bill Nye said it. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. And I was like, you know what? I shouldn't be surprised though, because here we got an actor playing a scientist that now somehow has been granted the legitimacy to argue scientific dogma. Right. With a proven creationist. Yeah. I was like, that seems like a fair fight, <laughs> but I, I ain't going to talk about that. Yeah. But no, so, uh, Henry Morris pointed out that based using the idea of evolution, um, zero, zero scientific discoveries to benefit mankind have ever been made. I'm going to tell you right now, you lie because technology has evolved, <laughs> but it hasn't, but it has, <laughs> it has changed. It has progressed. It has evolved and we are better for it <laughs> with the intentional, Addition of information from an intelligent mind. That's what makes the difference. So well said. Thank you. So we're talking about degrees of change then. Yes. One cannot use, and, and this just ticks me off when people do this. You can't use observable evidence for microevolution to prove unobservable macroevolution. Yes. True. You, you can't. Mm -hmm. that, that is an illegal use of the evidence. We were in sports. I throw a flag, blow a whistle. Yes. And it, say, that's a logical fallacy. Yeah. Appeal of misuse of information. I just made one up. <laughs> I thought it was real. I was like, shoot, I don't know if I've heard of that one before. Oh, but that's exactly what modern day evolutionists do. That's what they do all day long. You know, they're saying that it happens via natural selection. Don't believe that. You know, here are five reasons natural selection fails to explain macroevolution. Okay. All right, five. You got genetic limits. You have cyclical change, irreducible complexity. You've got non-viability of transitional forms and molecular isolation. All right, that's it. Good night, everybody. <laughs> Mic drop. That's right. I ain't got to talk about nothing else. <laughs> There's somebody going, you got what? With who? <laughs> what? Okay, start back at the beginning. All right, so... Genetic limits. You have, there seems to be a limitation on how much change can occur within a species, right? Okay. You can have significant variation within, within a given population set, 
but they don't actually become new kinds. All right, this is where you were, where I was telling you, hold off for a second. Okay, okay. All right, but this is your dog breeding example. All right. Right? Yeah. What were you going to say about the dog breeds? I was going to say that I've heard people actually say that dog breeding proves evolution. Okay. And I'm like. How, how do they argue that it proves it? They See, they there wasn't a follow-up argument. It was just the statement. Oh, dog breeding? Yeah. Proves evolution? Proves evolution. Well, uh, if you breed something, you're intentionally introducing change into, right. the, into the system, first off. Right. Secondly, you don't have change into new life forms. Right. Nobody has bred two collies and gotten a mule. Right. <laughs> it doesn't happen. I hope not. <laughs> but but here's the other issue that I have with it. If if evolution is happens by unguided change or random mutation, right? Those are the ideas. Mm-hmm. But it takes millions and millions of years. How in just the what couple thousand years? Maybe fourteen hundred years. I can't remember the the exact number of years that we've been breeding dogs. Okay. That we have Everything from a a Rottweiler to a teacup Yorkie by random mutation. Right. In just a couple thousand years. You wouldn't have enough time for that. I was like, come on, guys. This proves, look at the embedded genetic information that was in the first wolf when they started breeding it. The canine kind that allows for all of these different variations because there's not nearly enough time in just a couple thousand years to account for all of those differences and all of the different dog breeds. But you know what that proves? It proves a confusion between artificial selection and natural selection. Okay. Artificial selection actually has an, an aim in view, like an end goal in view. Natural selection doesn't. Artificial intelligence and Artificial selection has got an intelligently guided process behind it, which is what happens when you breed. Okay. Natural selection is it's just a blind process altogether, right? Right. It, you get intelligent choice of breeds, what you want to produce. With natural selection, there's no intelligent choice of breeds at all. You know, with artificial selection, breeds are guarded from destructive processes. With natural selection, breeds aren't guarded from any destructive process at all. With artificial selection, you get preserves. Uh, <laughs> you you get preservation, not preserves. My mind went off to food. <laughs> I was a like, jam. Oh uh, yeah, I How went right to Smucker's. <laughs> I had a huge train wreck in my mind. <laughs> but but with artificial selection, you actually preserve the desired freaks that you want. If you're, right, right. right? Uh-huh. You don't do that with natural selection. Natural natural selection should eliminate most of the freaks. Right. With artificial selection, you'll get continued interruptions to, to the, until you reach the goal. Okay. With natural selection, there's no continued interruptions to reach any goal because there was no goal in the first place. Right. There was there was no aim. And with artificial selection, you get preferential survival. Whatever breed you want to survive, that's that's what you're going for. Uh-huh. With natural selection, you don't get any of that. There's a major difference between the two camps. There really is. And if people aren't accounting for that, you can immediately try to confuse artificial selection with natural selection. Artificial selection is what you get with breeding. Right. It's not natural selection. It is not at all. Hence why you're going to have a problem claiming that artificial selection is a form of evolution. Right. Which uses natural selection. Do you start to see the tautology here? The (laughs) circular reasoning is crazy. It's like using bones to date. The rock and using the rock to date the bones. Let me tell you, we just had the thought police that <laughs> just came by. You are not going to bring up something as as controversial 
as modern dating systems. My bad. That 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 would be stupid. <laughs> so that's the first change. <clears throat> G- genetic limits. It, there is apparently a limitation built into the genetic code that does not allow for an organism to experience such wide sweeping change that it becomes a completely different type of species. Okay. I don't want to say species, a specific, a, a completely different type of kind. Right. And I think that's important. When God told Noah that he was going to take the sp- specified number of kinds onto the boat, uh-huh. I call the, I call the boat, but the boat, the ark, <laughs> Right. We get in our mind two of every species. Right. It's not what it said. Two of every kind. Now, part of that reason that we get the confusion is because of the the taxonomical structure or system that was created. It's not equivalent to the biblical structure. Okay. All right. But kind would be like from a taxonomical perspective, I think would be more like genius or family. Okay. So let's put it this way. If God was to just take um, the canine kind, Mm -hmm. which would be different from the feline kind. Right. There would be enough genetic information in that canine kind to produce wolves, dingoes, domesticated dogs, collies, German shepherds, foxes. Right. I think foxes are more canine, aren't they? I think so. I heard this really goofy idea that they're, they're dog hardware with cat software. Yeah, as soon as I, I mentioned them, I was like, <laughs> they're like a weird crossbreed. They are. They look more like a dog, but they move more like a cat. Kind of strange. Yeah. Okay, we'll scratch foxes off. <laughs> but you get my point. Yeah. All, all of those are specific ty- um, hyenas are, are part of the canine kind. Interesting. But they're different from wolves. They're different from dingoes. They're different from from domesticated dogs, uh-huh. but they are—they all are part of the canine kind. The genetic information to get those variations of 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 uh, species mm-hmm. would have been all inside the kind organism, right? That went on the ark. And I think, like we said, dog breeding lends credence to the fact that that is definitely a possibility. Right. The same thing when you get some of these major hybrid organisms that we get in captivity that never show up in the wild, like a liger. Yeah. Which is like super cool. <laughs> I love ligers. For those who don't know, a liger is a, is, is the result of breeding a lion and a tiger. Right. Coincidentally, the liger, the, the, the offspring, the resulting offspring of, of the, Cohabitation. I don't think you call it cohabitation of the breeding of the lion and the tiger produces a liger that is much bigger than his parents. Because there's a there's a growth inhibitor, but both in lions and tigers, it's only in one. It's in the male or the female. So when, when you take I can't remember which one it is, like male lion or female lion with the male tiger, female tiger. I can't remember. Okay, but when you take those because each one. Like just for the argument, say only the male lions have the growth inhibitor. Yeah. Well, then only the female tigers have the growth inhibitor. So if you have a male tiger and a female lion, there's no growth inhibitor. There's no growth inhibitor. So this thing is huge. Yeah. Like a freak of nature. Yeah. Like what? Three times the size of a, 
a regular lion, I think. Yeah. It's crazy. You can get some of these weird concoctions. Like, I don't have the article pulled up in front of me, uh, but there was one called uh, a wolfen. Oh. <laughs> yeah. The way I, when I read it, I was like, that, I just feel weird reading that. Yeah. <laughs> and they had, they had somehow got a, um, a whale mated with a dolphin to produce this thing. Okay. Weird. That is weird. <laughs> Super weird. Really hope it was a male dolphin. Yeah. I, I don't want to know because I'm, <laughs> I'm picture flipper <clears throat> and it's not going well. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I wish I could I could pull this article up because some of the the hybrids that were created were so strange, like a zebra and a donkey. I think it was called a Zool. Okay, and it had the zebra stripes. Uh huh. But it was like the size of a, of a mule or whatever. Interesting. Oh, so weird. Huh. But still, these are still they're within the the kind, right category. So. You're not getting, you're not mixing a zebra and a donkey and getting a chicken. Right. <laughs> Doesn't happen. <laughs> right. There's no addition. There's no additional DNA being created. Right. Or, and and that, 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 that takes us to the, the next limitation for why natural selection doesn't really work. And that's cyclical change. Okay. These are changes that are not directionally towards the development of new life forms which is what macroevolutionary theory requires, but they're simply shifts back and forth within a limited range. Okay, that makes sense. Right, now now this is kind of like, uh, I think we believe the example that was given had to do again with the finches and their beaks. Mm -hmm. And it was talking about how there were environmental factors that came into play that would activate that change in the beaks. So that like, I think with uh, wet season was producing um, certain types of food that smaller beaks were having problems getting to. So larger beaks were, were better suited for that. Okay. But as the, as the, the climate changed and the wet season went away and it became more dry, those beaks shortened up. Okay. And by shortened up, you mean that the ones that had naturally occurring shorter beaks had a better chance of survival and then procreated more finches with shorter beaks. Yes. I, I, on, on the outside, I would say that's probably the process. But okay. on the inside, there still is genetic information that's transferred. And so I'm still wondering what activates that bit of genetic information. Okay. Is why I don't think it's a completely unguided process. Okay. Well, I mean, there is, not to go off on a tangent, epigenetics. There is, but we're still dealing with information. Right. And so that information doesn't produce this whole scale change. That's true. We're still just getting finches. They just got shorter beaks or longer beaks, but they're still finches. Right. They're not salamanders. They are not. You get what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Our third reason this is one of my favorite ones. It's called irreducible complexity. <laughs> when I saw this, I don't know if you've heard this story, but uh, our friend Brent, him and his wife shared a phone for a minute. Okay. And I got up early one morning. I was thinking about irreducible complexity and Brent, you know, is a thinker. Like we've had conversations about right. the Anikothera mechanism and all kinds of stuff. Right. So I was like, man, I wonder what his thought. So I text him, man, what are your thoughts on irreducible complexity?
She picked up the phone and looked at it and she was like, oh, it's too early for this. <laughs> the next time I saw him, she's like, what are you on? That that's what you're thinking that early in the morning. That sounds like something she would say. Yeah. Uh, it was funny. That's hilarious. <laughs> this idea blew my mind the very first time I was ever introduced to it. It's pretty cool. I was like, yo, this is dope. So get this. 1859. I don't know, know if you knew this. Okay. 1859, Charles Darwin wrote that if it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed, which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, then my theory would absolutely break down. Ever heard that? I have, yes. Really? Uh-huh. That's dope. They don't really teach that in schools. They don't. Is, the, is that in his... Uh Origin of Species? I want to say it is, but I haven't read the book. I think so, because I went through the book, but I did it a while ago, so I'm not sure if that excerpt is from the book, but it sounds like it would be. Okay. Interesting enough, Michael Behe, who's a professor of uh, biochemistry at Lehigh University, and he wrote this revolutionary book called Darwin's Black Box, The Biochemical Challenge to Evolution. But Behe verified that cells are filled with molecular machines. Okay, so a person listening is like, woohoo, who cares? Right. All right, this is why this is important. If you have a machine, a machine has to consist of its necessary constituent parts in order to perform its function. Yes. Right? Uh-huh. Take a mousetrap, for example. A mousetrap has four basic components that are absolutely necessary for that mousetrap to function. Okay. All right, you got a platform, a spring, a hammer, and a hold-down bar. Okay. Some people would argue you need bait, but you can buy a mousetrap <laughs> and add the bait. Right. So I'm going to say these are the four. Okay. If you remove any one of these, you no longer have a mousetrap. Right. If any one of those four components is missing, you don't have the mousetrap. And none of those individual components do anything on their own. I mean, spring springs. How? Springs. Was, Doing. That's probably not the that sound would, that it makes. <laughs> But no, a spring would then be sprung, but then it's, that's all it does. Like it has, it has no usefulness on its own. Right. A hammer hammers. No, not by itself. Right. Right. I'm playing devil's advocate. I mean, some people think that guns do things on their own, but that's a whole different conversation. Right. Right. We can't even go there right now. <laughs> but if you have, if you, if you, Omit any one of these. If you reduce the complexity of the mousetrap by omitting just one of those pieces, you no longer have a mousetrap. That means that a mousetrap can reach uh, a certain level where you no longer can reduce the complexity and maintain the integrity of the system. Okay. This is why it's important. So if your cells are filled with molecular machines and those machines exhibit irreducible complexity you couldn't have like part of the machine minus the motor right you you would need the motor this is where like a back a bacteria flagellum is so important because it has it's this really cool biomolecular machine that exists within a cell that has an outboard motor like a tail and it moves back, and it, I think the tail like revolve. The revolutions are like in the thousands per second, mm -hmm. it's like crazy. super high. And it that's how it it it, it uh, projects itself within the fluid of the cell, right? Moving around. Well, how did you get an outboard motor? 
to evolve because that has parts to it. That if you didn't have these things, you wouldn't have the motor. And if you didn't have that, then the thing would be, it wouldn't really exist. It would fail to serve its purpose. Right. It wouldn't offer any evolutionary advantage to be continued on down the line. Right. While you're waiting for these other constituents parts to form. Right. This is huge. It is. Because this kind of takes us into the, into mm-hmm. the fourth issue, which is non-viability of transitional forms. Now, that's a nice, fancy phrase. <laughs> it is. That basically means if you have organisms, because this theory of evolution is based on this idea that all organisms share a common ancestor. And from that common ancestor across time with random change and mutation, we got various life forms, right? Okay. But in between those life forms that we would recognize, like these full-scale body parts or body part systems, there would be intermediate stages. Right. That would signify the evolutionary progression to that next new body type platform. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Well, the problem is while you're in transition, that thing probably would not be suited for life and would die out. So it couldn't pass on that information anyway. It's kind of like if you had a, a airplane and it's got a fully formed right wing and a half formed left wing, it won't fly. <laughs> But it needs to fly in order to pass along its genetic information, right? Yeah. But it won't. That's a non-viable transitional form. Interesting. It reminds me of the giraffe. I'm sorry. Why does that remind you of the giraffe? <clears throat> because the giraffe has this very particular, um, uh, shoot, circulatory system. Okay. To get blood to its brain. All right. Excuse me. And the reason it's so special is because if it didn't have these like sections that like they allow the blood to flow up, but not back down. Interesting. So it's almost like a. It's got valves. Valves kind of. Yeah. Okay. Because if it didn't have those, then the heart of the giraffe would have to be like 10 times the size that it is. And by the time the blood got to the brain, it would cause an immediate, what is it, aneurysm? Really? Because there's so much pressure. So it has all of these little valves that stop the blood from from flowing back down. Well, the transitional form of this would not make, you couldn't have a transitional form. Right. Because a long neck without the valves, there wouldn't be a brain. And a short neck with valves would put too much, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? A blockage in between the short distance of the heart and the brain. So it's just like you're saying, that transitional form couldn't survive. Interesting. Yeah. I didn't know about the non-viability of transitional forms phrase or any of that, but I have heard that argument about giraffes and how. You're, you're welcome. Thank you. Yeah. That didn't come from me, though. That, that came from Norm Geisler and Frank Turk. <laughs> well, now, instead of sounding like a kindergartner talking about giraffes, I can be like, oh, no, it's not that. It's non-viable or non, non-viability of transitional forms. What's that? Well, you can see this in something as simple as a giraffe. See, I've, I've got it all worked out already. You know, I want credit. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to need some points for that. That's fine. This is Jason's non-viability of transitional forms. <laughs> Idea. Not that I have that. That's funny. So here's the fifth reason for why um, natural selection fails to explain macroevolution. It's this idea called molecular isolation. Okay. Now, there's this whole idea, like, like we talked about before, of this whole common ancestor idea, right? 
Okay. But we have to figure out, is there evidence really for a common ancestor or for a common creator? Because it could be interpreted either way. You know, maybe the Darwinists are right, and it's possible that we have a common genetic code because we all descended from a common ancestor. But just as easily, they could be wrong. You know, I love how Norm Geisler and Frank Turk point this out. You know, perhaps we have a common genetic code because we have a common creator that's designed us to live in the same biological environment. Okay. Right? That makes sense. After all, if every living creature were distinct biochemically, a food chain probably could not exist. Yeah. Which is an interesting point I, I hadn't considered. Right, right. You know, perhaps life with a different biochemical makeup, maybe it's not even possible. But if it is, perhaps it, it couldn't survive in that type of a biosphere. So you got to ask this question. Are, are we talking about a common ancestor or are we talking about a common creator when we look at the body types and their similarity? Right. Okay. So let's talk about DNA for a second when we're, when we're dealing with molecular isolation. DNA is a genetic alphabet to contain a message. And it's equivalent to the capacity of the English alphabet to obtain a message, right? Okay. Yeah. The only difference is that DNA is alphabet with only four letters <clears throat> and our English alphabet has 26. Okay. But there's something that happens with our English language that could happen with, with DNA as well. You ever send a text out and accidentally hit one letter that you didn't mean? And it changes the whole text. <laughs> Never. Right. <clears throat> I do have a friend, though, that sent me a text message this past week with a lot of misplaced letters and words and stuff. Well, that's a lot, but I, we're just talking about one. Oh, just one? Yeah. I don't know if he's ever made that specific error before. Right. Now, this is important just for, just for one, because transposing one letter can really have a significant impact on the message that's being transmitted. Okay. Right, let's say you got one like uh, Charles Darwin is a scientific god. Let's say that's the message we want to transmit, right? Okay. All right, but if you transpose the G and the D, then you end up with Charles Darwin is a scientific dog. <laughs> very, very different. Yeah. Very, very different. Very different. But here's what's interesting. Both of those sentences contain basically pretty much 90% similarity. Yeah. They are 90% similar with just a 10% difference. Okay. The same 90% difference or similarity that those, that those two sentences have uh -huh. is the same 90% similarity that we have in our genetic code when compared to apes. Okay. It's also the same genetic similarity we have compared to mice. Interesting. That's never taught. Right. No, it's just taught that we came from apes. Because our DNA is so similar. Yeah. But that similarity could be because we both, apes, human beings, and mice, sir, live in the same bio, biological environment. Right? Yeah. Sorry, my, my brain went on this thing that I saw on the internet. What were you thinking? Uh, there was a, it was a scientific paper. It was a, I think it was an op-ed, but it was a, talking about how there's such little difference between male and female brains that there's practically no difference at all. And there was like a 10% difference. So of course I had to offer my input and I was like, there's less difference between us and apes than there are in the male and female brain. 
we might need to take that into consideration. Wow. Like yeah. just cause we're similar on an information level, it does not make us the same. Right. Like Charles Darwin is a, would, would you say an evolutionary or a scientific God and a scientific dog? Very similar. Very. They're not saying the same thing. No, because there's major differences in that. So here's the thing. We have to look for additional evidence. You can't just look for the similarity between the two to be the distinctive uh, evidence used to determine whether or not we're dealing with a, a common ancestor or a common creator. Right. All right. Now, according to Norm Geisler and Frank Turek, uh, that evidence actually has been found. They found that by comparing protein sequences, proteins are the building blocks of life, right? Yeah. And they're composed of a long chain of chemical units called amino acids, which must be present and structured in a very specific way. Right. Most proteins have in their structure more than 100 of these amino acids. It's a long word. Yeah, right? Right. And it's the DNA, it's the DNA that contains the instructions for ordering those amino acids in the proteins. And the order is critical because any variation usually renders the protein dysfunctional. Uh-huh. Absolutely critical. So here's where the problem arises for Darwinists. If all species share a common ancestor, we should expect to find protein sequences that are transitional from, say, uh, fish to amphibians or from reptiles to mammals, right? Okay. But that's not what you find at all. Instead, what we find are that the basic types of molecular are molecularly isolated from one another, which seems to preclude any type of ancestral relationship. Interesting. Like that's huge. So even though so, I'll, I'll go ahead. So I'm mean, just to make sure that I understand it would be like, like the difference between maybe English and Spanish just for a, a crude analogy. Okay. Like if you're talking about, so if all DNAs were carbon based life forms, right. And the genetic code has the base pairs, all of that, that's the same, mm -hmm. but you're saying that the actual sequence of proteins is completely different from species to species. Right. right. So that'd be like, because Spanish uses the same letters as English, mm -hmm. but the way that the words are structured aren't the same. Right. I mean, is that, a, is that a, I think that's a fair a comparison. Decent, so it shows that like the, the actual way that their biology is speaking is a completely different language than that of a different species. Right. Right. See, because all organisms share a common genetic code mm -hmm. with varying degrees of closeness, that code has ordered the amino acids and proteins in such a way that the basic types are in molecular isolation from one another. Okay. So you don't get this progressive movement like from fish to amphibian to reptile to mammal. Okay. Even though there's similarities, it stops at a certain point, which won't allow you to produce a whole nother life form. Okay. Like a, not a whole nother, but a different type of, of kind. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. This is huge. This is why you can't use Mac. You can't use natural selection as a means for producing large scale change to produce new forms of life. Okay. That makes sense. That's huge. That's like That's, five yeah. major, really big tentpole ideas that destroy this notion of macro evolution. You got genetic limits, cyclical change, irreducible complexity, non-viability of transitional forms and molecular isolation. Yeah. Those are big hurdles to jump. Right. So moving back to our question, 
Is evolution just taking tools from God's tool shed to build its own case against him? Listen, I can think of three stolen <laughs> tools right now. All right. You got the origin of matter. You've got the origin of, of first life. And you got the origin of biological information. Okay. Three major tools that you need to get evolution off the ground and running. So it's like, I mean, you've mentioned Frank Turk a bunch of times. I love his statement. He says that you have to sit in God's lap in order to smack him in the face. Not something that I would recommend doing, but absolutely <laughs> you'd have to. Right. You know, when it gets when you get to the origins of matter, if the laws of physics produce matter, then what produced the laws of physics? Because they can't produce themselves. True. Right. Major question. If we even allow for the Big Bang in the broadest sense to, to be true, you know, as a catalyst for evolutionary process, you'd have to admit that it in and of itself was actually a supernatural event. Yes. You have to. It's right. the only explanation. There is no way you could account for it as a physical event. Here, here's the reason why. If the Big Bang is what was used to produce the laws of physics, you cannot argue that the laws of physics produce the Big Bang. Right. Especially because the laws of physics say that matter cannot be created. Right. So you can't use those laws to create those laws. Those laws. Yeah. This is how crazy it is when you break down these ideas. Yeah. And it, it just all starts falling apart. You know, the universe's supernaturally cosmological beginning is best described, as we said last month in our last tough question segment. And okay. that is whatever began to exist must have had a beginning and therefore must have a cause for its existence. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe must have a cause for its existence. The attributes of the cause of the universe are reflective of the attributes of God. I.e. timeless, existing outside of space, time, matter, continuum, immensely powerful, ordered, structured, detailed, information rich, and fine-tuned for life. I almost got those when I was trying to remember them earlier. Oh, you got everything, probably except just the last one. Okay. You did phenomenal. So it leads to the, to the final conclusion. Therefore, the cause of the universe must be God. Right. This is, I mean, you, you got to deal with this one. <laughs> yeah. Just to roll off a slap in his face. Yeah. This is the you first to. toe that you got to crawl over. Mm -hmm. You haven't got to the kneecaps yet. <laughs> you know, then you got to get the hurdle of the origin of the first life. Now, this is huge, too. Okay. Because we know that you could, we know that life cannot be chemical alone. Right. The way we know this is they've already conducted experiments where if you put a cell that is alive into a sterilized environment, right? Mm -hmm. And then you puncture that cell and you allow all of the contents of that cell, which, is, which was alive, to leak out into the sterile environment. You know what doesn't happen? What? That sterile environment doesn't become alive. But it has all of the chemical ingredients that that cell, which was alive, had. Okay. Because we punctured it and it leaked out. Right. But so it's you got not all alive. the parts, all the ingredients. Yeah. But it's not alive. Hmm. Which tells you that life as a force is not a physical property. Interesting. You have to account for where did the first life come from? 
That's that's I like that. Pop my collar a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's good. It's major. Absolutely major. If you manage somehow to scale that kneecap on your way to sit in God's lap, <laughs> all right, then you have to deal with the origins of biological information. Yeah. Which is DNA. Diana? Dana. Right, that's how I always <laughs> want to pronounce it. You remembered, huh? I remembered. That's funny. But yeah, you have to account for that. And and, and that's major. Yeah, you know, information is, is no small thing. No, this is really the death nail, in my opinion, when it comes to this whole evolutionary idea. Okay. Uh, and you have to deal with it. We don't get taught a lot in school about DNA, which is unfortunate. Right. Because I think it, it, there's a lot of information that's really rich here. No, no pun intended. Uh, <laughs> that I think people will really appreciate if we could focus on it and was presented in an interesting way. Yeah, we're not taught much about DNA outside of school either. It's true. Except for don't leave it on blue dresses and it can be used <laughs> to incriminate you. Somebody will get that. Somebody, right. Right. So I, I like what uh, uh, Francis Collins, which I believe was one of the uh, co-founders, uh, not co-founders, co-discoverers of the DNA molecule structure. Okay. Uh, he said that um, when it came to DNA, that this newly revealed text was 3 billion letters long and written in a strange cryptographic four-letter code, such as the amazing complexity of the information carried within each cell of the human body, that a live reading of that code at a rate of three letters per second would take 31 years if reading contained or continued day and night. Printing these letters out in a regular font size on normal bond paper and binding them all together would result in a tower the height of the Washington Monument. For the first time on that summer morning, this amazing script carrying within it all of its instructions for building the human body was available to the world when they discovered it. That's crazy. Right? And this is in every cell. Every cell of your body. Absolutely mind-blowing. Because you have specified complexity in that stream of information. Right. Now, anytime that we find specified complexity, not just complexity. Like if you had an, an explosion of letters on a page and they're just there randomly, they are arranged in a complex manner. Right. But when they're arranged in a specified complex manner to communicate information, like a message, mm -hmm. that is the result of an intelligent mind. Always. Interesting. Always. You Like you were talking about, you can have an explosion in printing press uh -huh. and get all the letters on the page. That does not produce the Gettysburg Address. Right. It doesn't. When you see the Gettysburg Address, which is those letters arranged in a very specified manner to communicate words, and those words are arranged in a specified manner to communicate sentences. And the sentences are arranged in a specified manner to communicate these overall thoughts, right? Right. That's not by accident at all. That's you can't get that from natural from natural processes. A hmm. bang won't produce that, whether in an explosion in a printing press or in the vacuum of space. It doesn't give you specified complexity, which is necessary for the genetic information contained in DNA. So at this point, you're sitting in God's lap and he's going to kick you out. <laughs> I'm just, you about to get the divine right hand. Yeah. So you were saying that, that 
and, and if I'm off on, on the wrong track here, you can stop me. But you were saying that life itself is not physical, right? Or not, how, how did you phrase it? I don't know. That was like five years ago <laughs> in my mind. Anyway, so you were talking about the Gettysburg Address, right? Well, I was saying, yeah, but with your question about life. Well, I'll, I'll get there. Okay. Um, so the the letters are structured to make words, word structures to make sentences, and then the sentences are structured to express ideas. Right. And ideas are non-physical. Ideas are this this thing that is so much larger than just the 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 specified um, order that's on the page, right? Right. Well, that's exactly what's happening in our DNA. Hmm. You have all of these uh, amino acids and <laughs> proteins building this this thing that is conceptually so much larger than just its subsequent parts. Right. Like ink and wow. letters and paper did not address the nation. Right. Now they represented that. They helped express that. Now that's good. Isn't that crazy to think yeah. about? Yeah, you took it a step further than even I had. That, that's really good. It's crazy. I like that. I'm starting to think that maybe we're, we're punching just a little hole in, in the armor of evolutionary thinking. I hope so. Just a small one. Just a little one. Little chink in the armor. Right. Okay. Well, let's let's play devil's advocate. Let's let's put our our inner Al Pacino on. Okay. I, I like this. <laughs> let's let's play devil's advocate. Watch your hands. Yeah. <laughs> That's a that has nothing to do with me personally in studio. <laughs> that is a reference to the film. People not here, like, what is he doing in the studio? First, I got cans on my head. <laughs> now you're telling me to watch my hands. Yeah, you're going to have to start thinking about the listener. That's funny. My bad. <laughs> you are on something else today, <laughs> sir. But, okay, here we go. If Darwinism, you know, evolutionary thinking, but Darwinian evolution, if that is actually a viable replacement for God, then let's look at, let, let's look at this thing and apply it to society. Right? Okay. Because there's a funny concept. It's, it's interesting how often people seem to steal from God to explain their concepts. So right. when it comes to Darwinian evolution, there's this idea embedded in it called the tree of life. Which is when you get the common ancestor at the base. Okay. And then these various life forms produce the branches and everything else. Um, it's called the tree of life. And I think it's a wonderful uh, idiom for us. Because scripture says you can judge a tree by its fruit. Uh, I like where you're going with this. So let's see if if Darwinian evolution is a viable replacement for God. Then let's see what fruit it has produced as it's been applied to to human society. Okay. First things first, we get social Darwinism. Not good. No. Now, for those who aren't familiar with that term, social Darwinism is basically what we just, just talked about. It's taking... Darwinian evolutionary principles like survival of the fittest mm -hmm. and applying it to, to society. Right. I'm sure that will produce wonderful fruit. <laughs> I can think of one great one right off the bat. Okay. Racism. Yeah. Now, just to be clear, racism existed prior to Darwin pinning this whole origin of the species deal. It, it existed before that. Right, right. But... It well, because in fairness, 
the idea of evolution. Well, that's why I didn't say that. I said okay, okay, okay. Darwin's painting of, of gotcha. the, okay. the uh, I gotcha. origin of the species and the descent of man. Sorry, I didn't mean to. No, I'll, I'll reacquire my thought. Thank you. Racism. <laughs> How could I forget? <laughs> Story of my life. No, racism existed prior to that, right? Mm-hmm. But what Darwinian uh, evolution gave racism was a quote-unquote credible scientific basis on which to establish racist thinking. Okay, yep. All right, it, it kind of gave it a uh, a bodyguard. Yeah. I don't think anything bad has come about after that. You know, the atrocities we saw in the South, we can't really call them atrocities, just a way of life that we saw in, in Southern United States applied to people of melanin-rich content. Yeah, it's it, it, it's interesting since, sorry, since we're on this, mm-hmm. a lot of people attack the idea of religion because look at the atrocities that are done under the name of religion. Okay. Now there's a lot of hasty generalization going on there because right. by religion they probably mean Christianity and by that Catholicism. But nobody very often looks at these atheistic views. Did you just break that down that fast? <laughs> Maybe. When they say religion, they mean Christianity. And when they say Christianity, they mean Catholicism. Yeah. That's crazy. <laughs> I just don't want to fly past that. That's, that's dope. Okay. Thanks. Thanks. Well, go ahead. But yeah, so a, a lot of that is said, well, it can't be true because look at the atrocities done in its name. Uh-huh. There's problems there. But why isn't that ever attributed to any other atheistic ideas like you're saying right nobody says darwinism can't be true because look at all of the racism that came out of it right because it did it it sure enough did and not as a misrepresentation as an accurate um shoot what's the word i'm looking for um extension extension thank you okay an accurate extension of the ideas found in Darwinian evolution. Did you know that Johann F. Blumenbach was the first person to actually divide humanity on the basis of skin color? It was him? Yeah. It was this dude. Okay. Wrote a paper. It got adopted into the academic system at, 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 at the time. Okay. It was disseminated out to the public mind. This dude is basically responsible for why people refer to themselves as white and black. Oh, I've wanted us to touch on this for so long. We'll do a whole nother episode, I'm sure. But this is why. And when he, you, go uh, ahead. Well, when you refer to yourself that way, uh-huh. you're really referring to his system of classification. And if, if I'm tracking, he would have been an evolutionist? I believe. White supremacist? Definitely. It was definitely white supremacist. <laughs> and the only reason I say that is because after he broke the the, the human race into uh, black, white, red, yellow, and brown, he said that what he believed was that the the whites, the Caucasians, were the most beautiful race. Of course. Absolutely. He himself being uh, a Caucasian. Right. So, of course, you, you, you would say that. You have to. But that, in effect, makes him the first white supremacist. And we've been using this system ever since. Not good. No, not at all. Because from that, you get the type of of contention. I remember talking to my uh, brother-in-law, Christopher, one time, and and we were talking about racism. And he referenced a different definition for it, which is basically uh, competition between groups of people. 
Interesting. Well, if that's the case, and if they're, you'd have to ask, what are they competing for? Which would be controlled resources. Right. And if they're competing to get these controlled resources, what are their rules on how they're competing? And we'd, Im- we'd immediately have to say survival of the fittest. Have to. Which takes you right back to evolutionary think- thinking applied. Yeah. I'm sure it's produced a lot of problems. Yeah, and there's nothing in the evolutionary model to suggest that you shouldn't get over on your fellow man. Because if you can, then you're more fit. Yeah, you're smarter. And that gives you justification to do it. Absolutely. I mean, it's that simple. This is where we started hearing things like, you know, the Negro brain is so small. They're they're not fit to do certain things, although history has proved that completely falsified. Did you know one of the studies, I know we're, we're getting long on time here, one of the studies to determine why people melanin rich were intellectually insuperior is because they had a set of rigorous physical activities. Did you just say insuperior? Inferior. Did I say insuperior? Yes, but it's okay. You're, you're melanin poor. I'll forgive you. <laughs> Inferior. Jeez. Anyway. Go ahead. <clears throat> yeah. So they had these, this rigorous uh, physical tests. Okay. Like reaction time and, and all kinds of things. And the melanin rich scored highest on that. Okay. You know what they took away from that? Well, if your physical prowess is such, then you must be impaired intellectually. I was like, you've got to be interesting. There was no intellectual assessment whatsoever. It's because because you can now this is gonna sound super racist, because you can play ball, you gotta be dumb. Like that's literally what they came away with. That's nuts. Yeah. That's stupid. Yeah, that absolutely makes no sense. But we'll do you one better. Okay. Another fruit from this Darwinian tree of life would be class warfare. Okay. Well, the reason you have these different ideas, right? You've got like cultural Marxism. The idea that there's so much conflict is, is there's so much issues because there's conflict. Right. Which is going to produce conflict theory. Gotcha. And so we just need to remove the conflict. But who is the primary class and who's the who's the uh, the lesser class? You're going to have to figure that out. And as soon as you do, you're back to survival of the fittest because there's going to be exploitation that occurs. Interesting. But these different socioeconomic philosophies actually try to address class warfare in different ways. Okay. I mean, you get the communist that says, well, it's private ownership. So you don't need to own anything. State needs to own it. Right. And that'll remove the have and have nots. Because you just won't get anything. Well, no, I mean, we'll determine, we'll measure it out fairly. It's the state. We'll, okay. We'll, we'll, we'll measure it out fairly. Right, but it, I'm, I'm saying it won't be yours. It'll be the state's. It'll be the state's, but we'll, we'll measure it out to you and everything will, will be, we'll have equitable, right? We'll have equality. Then you get capitalism. Capitalism says the reason that there's, there's a conflict is because we need to have private ownership. Right. Well, capitalism, and I don't know if this is the place for it, but in Henry Morris's book, The Long War Against God, he says that capitalism is specifically derived from the concept of Darwinian evolution. Uh, I could see it. That every business is out for survival of the fittest. Absolutely. That's it. That, that's, the, that's how you play the game. Mm-hmm. This is how you could have, and just after the Great Depression, I was talking to a guy about this uh, this week, you could have right at the time of the Great Depression, Three people in the United States that effectively have 98% of the nation's wealth. Yeah. How do you have 
the type of poverty that existed after the Great Depression. If you had three people who hold 98% of the wealth, let's reverse that. I don't know what the population was in 19, what, 30, 32, 33? Something like that, yeah. When the, when the Great Collapse happened? Yeah. I don't know what the population was. But you have to reverse that. And whatever the population was in the United States, the United States population had 2% of the nation's wealth. While three other people owned the other 98%. That's that means ridiculous. Everybody else existed on 2% of the rest of the nation's wealth. That's crazy. Yeah. Right? And at no point were those three guys like, you know what? We should probably do things in a way that's that better helps our fellow man. Right. So the families that starved to death, people that committed suicide, all of that. Jumped out of the bill. Yep. All of that. Is survival because, of the fittest. Yeah. Three guys wanted all that money. But I mean, if, <clears throat> if other people were smarter, they would have done what they need to do in business in order to get ahead. Right. It breeds exploitation. It does. Then you. They, so anyway, you, you've got capitalism that says private ownership is the way to reduce conflict. And of course, you need to have unregulated ownership because the markets will take care of things on their own, right? <laughs> right. You don't need to have rules and all. Just let the markets do do what they do, and everybody will be okay. Then you have socialism. And socialism basically says, okay, fine. We're not going to have private ownership. We're not going to have state ownership. Everybody owns everything. <laughs> That'll reduce all the conflict. Yeah. None of it works. None of it works. None of it addresses the real problem which is going to be sin and the sin nature of man. Right. But based off of an evolutionary model, you all can't you, deal with sin. You you can't at all. So all you have to do to remove conflict is to, to adhere to some of these weird ownership ideologies. But I don't know why, if you're following an evolutionary model, why you would want to do away with conflict anyway, based off of that model, the way that you excel is through conflict. I don't think they do away with it at all. There's the promise of doing away with it, but when it's coupled with exploitation, you're going to have conflict. Right. Maybe that's the thing that the, that the lay should should take away from this, that there has to be some level of villainy because if these ideas are based off of evolution and evolution is based off of survival of the fittest, then the quote marginalized groups that are adhering to these socialist, communist, Capitalist. Capitalist ideologies. That when all of your faith is in that, they are not structured if based off of evolution to have the best interest of the lower class or middle class at heart. They're only structured to advance those that are at the top because that's what evolution does. Absolutely. This is how you could have Wall Street do what it did to the people. You know, when you take people who enter into um, institutions of higher learning like Harvard, and they are exposed to academic uh, curriculum that endorses evolutionary thinking. And you teach them that they are the byproduct of random change mm -hmm. and living on a planet that just accidentally happened to be here. Right. You have no purpose. You, you got no absolute morals. It's just do, do the best you can. And if you get over on your fellow person, it doesn't matter because there's no real meaning to life anyway. Right. This is how you can have people do what they did unscrupulously and mess up people's lives in some very real ways. This is how greed can rule. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah, absolutely. But you got another fruit on this tree. Okay. Eugenics. Eugenics. That's the whole study of, of uh, what's the best way to describe eugenics? 
one of our last episodes, you asked me and then gave me crickets and you're like, don't worry about it. <laughs> right. And like, I had a great definition, <laughs> but for whatever reason, I cannot think of right now. So I'm going to make up this definition on the spot. All right. I would say the best way to describe eugenics is socially accepted genocide. Okay. That's good. That works. Yeah. Yeah. No crickets for me. <laughs> but how do you determine who's viable? Who's not? How do you determine who's, who's desirable? Who's not? Who's a useless eater? Who's not? Yeah. You're back to class warfare and you're back to who, well, whoever's, whoever's got the power survival of the fittest again. Right. Whoever's making the rules. Right. Now here's, here's the big one. You get debt slavery. Yep. From evolutionary thinking applied to society. You get this whole idea that it's okay for me to exploit you and to take all of your money because if you were smarter, you you wouldn't fall for the trick. Mm-hmm. You'd have other means at your disposal. Understanding the system is completely rigged in that person's favor. Yeah. These are all major problems in our society. Not just in our society. These are global problems. Global problems, right. But evolution, evolutionism is the foundation of global thought. Yeah. The United Nations, UNESCO, pushes evolutionary doctrine. They do. So it's no wonder that these fruits show up. Yeah, it's bad, though. What it's else do bad. you get? This is just a couple fruits. This ain't even that bad. <laughs> Look, you get a fractured, hopeless, unrealistic worldview when you apply evolutionary thinking to, to life. All right, every worldview, because again, we're trying to answer this question. Can you can evolution basically replace God? So if you're going to do that, you got to remember God is sovereign over a lot more things than just the scientific community. Right. All right. This is this is big boy time. Yeah. When you sitting on his throne, you're sovereign over everything. Right. You don't get to pick and choose just where you want to take God out of. Right. You're taking him out of the whole equation, then you've got some big shoes to fill. Yeah. Every worldview is required to to address four basic issues. You got origin, right? Yep. Morality, meaning, and destiny. Okay. What happens when you apply evolution to to those four? Not good things. No, if you apply evolution to origins, you know, you got to address where do we come from? You came from an accident. Yeah. And look at how destructive that is. Like if a child hears that their parents didn't even mean to have them. Right. That, that causes serious psychological issues. Or it does. Yeah, it causes trauma on a certain level. Yeah. You know, nobody likes to be called an accident. Right. And they're just saying everyone is an accident. Absolutely. That, that's a great point. Absolutely. Apply evolution to the second issue, morality. How are we supposed to treat others? It doesn't matter. Situational ethics. Just do what's best for you. Right. Get over on anyone that you can. Absolutely. That doesn't seem to produce a healthy society. It doesn't. All right, deal with the third one, meaning. You know, what's the meaning and purpose of this existence? Evolutionary thinking would answer that by saying life is absolutely meaningless because life is accidental, just happened by random chance. If you're going to reach in an evolutionary field, you could try to say that the whole purpose of your existence is to procreate, to extend your genetic line. But that doesn't address deep enough, no pun intended. I be full of puns today. It doesn't really, it doesn't. Because then why? Why keep extending? Right. It doesn't, but but I mean, they. so out of this universe that is an accident, there tends to be this universal grain of, of the universe. Jeez, that's redundant. But there's this grain of the universe that tends to be directed towards a particular aim for no apparent reason because it's an accident. 
Right. Like it doesn't even make sense in it playing in its own waters. Right. And then you got to get to the fourth issue, which is destiny. What happens after we die? Nothing. No, you cease to exist. Right. That's catastrophic. I mean, and you can even look at the, the, the mental health of the populace is in rapid decline. Absolutely. Even child suicides are at an all-time high right now. Because of this idea amongst others, but this is, is the foundational prima facie idea that our educational system is built off of, that the, the uh, entertainment sports industry, that uh, video games are built off of this. Everything runs off of evolutionary model on some level. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And the entire new world order is, is function is, is, I don't want to say building itself is being built in, in a way to not only endorse evolutionary thinking, but to carry it out to its ultimate conclusion. Yeah. I take you a step further and, and I just want to introduce this provocative idea. Okay. I think, you know, you and I were talking before we started recording. And one of the things you, you mentioned was the idea that evolutionary thinking, not necessarily Darwinian evolution, but evolutionary thinking as a whole is super ancient, predates New Testament writings. Yes. And could probably be, be as old as creation itself. Yes. I want to take that a step further. And I want to say, I think Satan is the ultimate evolutionist. Okay. All right. Now, this idea was, uh, we were talking about the long war against God and uh-huh. remorse. He made the statement that he believes that Satan it was the first evolutionist, right? Yeah. And I had to think about that for a minute. But I, I have to say I agree. It's, it's a weighty concept. It is. But I really have to say I agree. Like, if you put yourself in Satan's shoes and you're this being who thinks you're equal to God, why? Yeah. Why do you think we're equal? Well, we're both spirit. Well, how'd you come about? Well, I came about like the rest of the spirits were. You know, we came out with water, whatever. We woke up and and here we are. Right. And your spirit. So you're no better than me. Right. Even if God's like, I created you. If if his perception is, well, you're just telling me that because. Right. All I know is I woke up and you you were here and. You could have just been here at the same time. Right. We just begin to exist. And I'm better than you, and I'm going to prove it. And we're getting this, this constant cosmological battle trying to prove that I'm superior. Right. Survival of the fittest. Because you're just a, a rung up on the evolutionary ladder. I mean, maybe. you Maybe you just stole that rung, and you don't deserve it. Oh, okay. And I'm going to prove you don't deserve it because you're not a righteous judge. You're a liar. You're mean. You don't accept alternative lifestyles. You just want everybody to have your own. Hmm. You know, all these charges. Right. That he's trying to prove in the court of life. Interesting. Fascinating, isn't it? Absolutely fascinating idea. Yeah. So then if that's his thought, then as he influences man after him. It would become man's thought. Who needs God? God's replaceable. Right, which is why we see that evolution didn't, the idea of evolution didn't start with Darwin. That he stole the ideas from his family members and from ancient documents. Because every, every worldview that degrades from monotheism to pantheism, which, so the, the progression is 
that the highest or most uncorrupted worldview would be monotheism. Right. And then as just left to ignorance and degradation, it becomes pantheism. Which would be the idea that everything is God. Right. So monotheism is there's one God. One God that created everything. Right. And then you go to pantheism, which is that everything is God. Right. God and everything is together. Right. And then. So that's like God's in the trees and you are God. Right. Right. That's that Oprah Winfrey type ideology. Right. We're all little gods and right, 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 all right, right. that craziness. And Christ spirit and Christ consciousness, all that bull crap. Right. Right. So then, but that relies on evolution. Okay. Every Dr. Henry Morris lays out in his book, the one war against God, that every pantheistic worldview bases those ideals off of evolution. Interesting. Might not be Darwinian evolution, but it is this slow progression of lesser form to higher form lives in every pantheistic worldview. I think he called that the great chain of being. Okay, yeah. If I'm remembering I, correctly. That sounds right, yeah. I just went through you, the book. I, the I, sh- back. I should know. <laughs> right, <laughs> I, I haven't read that in better. a while, but yeah, I think that's what he was talking about. And that, and that was such an interesting connector that because that really formed the basis of his idea of why this has been a long war. Right. Like this real war against God is really this evolutionary idea that's been taken all the way back to the first rebel. Right. It is, it's, it's infiltrated creation. It serves as a counterfeit to the divine doctrine that's been established by the Bible. And it's being used to usurp God's right to rule. Yeah. Good night, everybody. <laughs> so that's the that's the satanic control matrix from the days of old. Right. Absolutely. Night. <laughs> if Darwinian evolution is true, then like Prince, uh, I mean not Prince, like William Provine from Cornell University said you end up with five inescapable conclusions. Okay. All right. Number one, you end up with, there's no evidence for God's existence. Okay. Secondly, there's no life after death. Third, there's no absolute foundation for right or wrong. Fourth, there's no ultimate meaning for life. And lastly, people don't really have free will. That last one's a big claim. Right? I mean, it's... But this is what evolutionary thinking would... These are five inescapable conclusions that result from evolution if it's true. You know, I just had this this interesting thought. So if we don't have free will, where did the idea of free will come from? What was the first evolutionary, evolutionarily advanced being that decided that somehow his consciousness or his brain evolved such a capacity to invent an idea of free will to convince himself that he had it. We would probably say that he was a devolved being that came up with a mutated idea that there was such thing as free will. That walks. Does it? No. (laughs) I was like, how? Right. No, it's the same problem. Yeah, but that doesn't make any sense. Where do we even get the concepts of right and wrong? I was just going to ask who 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 made you write that statement. Yeah. You know, for people who say there's no free will. Yeah. He's just saying that would be the the conclusion you'd have to come to if evolution was true. Right, but like like we were saying that their claims, I don't want to say they're hypocritical, but a lot of claims or the tenets of evolutionary speaking are 
and congruent, right? You had to finish your sentence. Incongruent uh, with themselves. Oh, they're contradictory. Con- yeah. Cause even, so like even, um, what's his name? Richard Dawkins r- wrote the book, the God delusion. Okay. And he's quoted as saying, I, I believe he's the one that says that we're just dancing to the tune of our DNA. Right. Yeah. He's also the one when they asked him what the subtitle of his book was, he was like, Oh God, I can't remember. Right. <laughs> how, how are you calling on the God to help you remember for the book that you used to, you know, substantiate his non-existence. Right. But I also believe that Richard Dawkins went on an anti-baptism campaign. Okay. That seems weird. Why, if we're just dancing to the tune of our DNA, would you want to unbaptize people that have been baptized if it doesn't mean anything? Right. And you're just like, there's just so much of it that doesn't even make sense at a, at a, at a basic level. Right. That's crazy. Uh, I'm on board, bro. You preach to the choir. <laughs> I, I get that same level of frustration. Because if evolutionary thinking is not valid, then it doesn't serve as a justifiable replacement for God. Right. And so when that person's hitting you with that whole, who needs God when we have evolution? Oh, this is all the stuff that comes on the table when we're talking about that concept. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And this is big stuff. It is. Like this is this is heady things to sort through. Yeah, it, it's difficult to sift through them in order to find meaning. Right. But if you don't do that, you, you got to find meaning. You know, you got to sift through information to find meaning. We call that the Ayala effect because yes. everybody wants to know what does this mean? You don't just want data. Right. You need information. You need that data sorted to provide specified meaning to you. Right. Yep. And we don't want to get into these concepts and just dump them on people. We don't want to just highlight the problem and not give any option for hope. Because if you do that, if you just hit a problem and you don't give a person a solution, you don't give them a, 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 a I don't even want to say an escape. You don't even give them a, a future hope that things can get better. Mm-hmm. Dude, all they end up hearing is this. <laughs> that is absolutely what you don't want. Right. It's true. So here, here's the question before us today. Has Darwinian, Darwinian evolution, Darwinism, really put God out of a job. You know, is evolution the death nail to Christianity's creation-based worldview that some people claim it to be? Or does it borrow tools from God's tool shed in order to build its case against him? I would say it definitely borrows tools. I would say it steals them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it doesn't plan on giving them back. At all. No, it's crazy. Yeah, I, there's no way that, that I could intellectually and reasonably suggest that evolution is really a death nail to the creation-based worldview. Like, not at all. Right. Not even close. No, it doesn't help to resolve anything. No. It covers up, it obfuscates things, it ignores things, sidesteps, and it makes up things. And then it enjoys a protected status. Yeah, that you can't talk about it and you can't question it. No, and it hasn't earned that. You know what I mean? Yeah, it hasn't. It doesn't do any of the answers. And unfortunately, I don't think there's enough people that are willing to look outside of that box. Mm-hmm. You know, and go, why can't we question this? You know, why, why, are, we, why are we living in this world, you know, that, that, that restricts our cognitive exploration to just what you tell us is true? 
Yeah, I mean, if it was a safe place, it, if it was a safe place that you could you could be, then it would almost be like being in Kansas, right? And you got people walking around like they're still in Kansas, but the truth really is, you are not in Kansas anymore. You are on Pandora, ladies and gentlemen. Respect that fact every second of every day. Out there beyond that fence, every living thing that crawls, flies, or squats in the mud wants to kill you and eat your eyes for jujubes. If you wish to survive, you need to cultivate a strong mental attitude. You've got to obey the rules. Pandora rules. Yes, I love that clip. I do. Love it. And rule number one is educate yourself. Absolutely. Because first things first, you got to know your war doctrine. You got to know it. This is how we develop that strong mental aptitude. Absolutely, Christopher. And I I love that scene, man. I get amped every time I hear it. But here's the thing, and you're 100% right. Scripture tells us in Genesis 1-1 that all things were created that have a beginning and that at that time, God created the heavens and the earth. Job 38-4 asked the question, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Revelation 4.11 responds so beautifully to that with, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. In fact, John 1.1 testifies to that. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In fact, Colossians 1, 16 through 17 expands on that when it reiterates the fact that for by him, all things were created, not evolved in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him, all things hold together by his divine force reflected in the laws of physics. Scripture warns us, all right, Colossians 2.8, see to it that no one takes us captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, right? Mm -hmm. That's man's assumption of naturalism and the embracing of materialism, you know, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Romans 1.18 through 22 warns us about unrighteous men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is actually plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are actually without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not want to honor him as God or give thanks to him as the creator, but they became fruitile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Now, Proverbs 4, 14 and 15 actually extends on that and tells us that the simple believes everything, but the prudent gives thought to his steps. And that's not talking about walking, you know, not his physical steps, mm -hmm. but how he actually walks through what he thinks. Okay. Second Peter 3, 4 through 5 tells us that they're actually going to be scoffers that are going to come in the last day scoffing following their own simple desires and they're going to say things like all things are continuing as they always have from the beginning of creation that's uniformitarianism 
for they will deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. All right. I like that. Scripture anticipates evolutionary claims. All right. Lay it on me. It refutes the claim of large cosmological geological ages when it states in Exodus 20, 11, for in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. It refutes the inference that death was part of the design of, of creation process when it would have had had to have been that in order for natural selection and survival of the fittest to be happening for eons as the evolutionary process continued when it states in Romans 5.12 that sin came into the world not through evolution, but through one man and death through sin. Not death because organisms were mutating to increase their chances of survival because they were the quote fittest to survive. Right. It refutes racism. When it says that there is only one race, the human race, it refutes the idea that conflict is based on class warfare when it states that conflict is actually based on sin. It refutes the eugenicist when it tells us to love our neighbor as ourselves. The most ardent eugenicist should actually be the first one to kill themselves. Yeah. If you, if you really got to love your neighbor <laughs> as yourself. Right. Not kill your neighbor first. Yeah. Right. Uh-huh. It refutes debt slavery when it tells us not to charge interest. Which yeah. that one principle alone would entire would completely cripple the Federal Reserve System. It would. Right? That would ruin the Babylonian money magic system that's in place right now. If I could just touch on the, the second point you made. <clears throat> you were talking about that um Death. Death through sin. Yeah. And the the issue of the idea of evolution being in stark contrast to the word of God. Mm-hmm. It's because the word of God says that through man, death entered the world. Right? Right. Because of Adam's sin. Right. But evolution teaches that through death, man entered the world. Wow. Yeah. That's phenomenal. Completely backwards. Right. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that's dope. Yeah, I like that. I, I, I heard that first from Kent Hovid. Okay. So, so that wasn't me. That I, takes us right to uh, rule number two is do not cede any ground to your enemy. Now, this is what we call the biblical counteroffensive strike package. I like that. Now, somebody out there is like, what in the heck is that? <laughs> simple it's a three-phrased assault plan okay scripture gives us this this layout it tells us to expose oppose and depose all right all right it tells us in, in ephesians 5 11 have no fellowship with the works of darkness but expose them it means you got to talk about them got to all right it tells us to oppose in james 5 7 subject ourselves to the authority of scripture and use that authority to resist the devil all right. And in 2 Corinthians 10, 5, it teaches us to depose when it tells us to demolish every argument and pretension that sets itself up against what God has said is true and keeps people from knowing him. Right. Right. We've got to remember materialism and evolution by extension are fundamentally wrong. It makes reason impossible and is therefore an unreasonable replacement for God Almighty. We cannot reasonably abide evolutionary practice because it's an unreasonable premise whose goal is actually to replace God on all levels. That's true. Can't seat that ground. Can't do it. So that takes us to rule number three. We've got to pray like it's all up to God, but work like it's all up to us. I love that rule. Yeah. Now, some people probably have a little problem with this because, you know, okay, you told me to pray and you told me to work, but what do I do? Yes. <laughs> that's your answer just that's my yes. answer yes absolutely <laughs> all right here, here's a couple suggestions okay when it comes to prayer ask god to open the eyes of the understanding of those that have been blinded by the satanic control matrix all right that's a good start 
Secondly, ask God to soften the hearts of those that have been hardened through educational agendas like Alice Bailey's plan to educate God out of the hearts of children. Yeah. You gotta remember what she said. If you take God out of education, they will unconsciously form a resolve that God is not necessary to face life. Children will then focus on things the school counts them worthy to be passed on, and they will look at God as an additional, like an addendum. Right. If anyone can even afford an additional. Right. It's critical. Got to. I'd also add to um to pray that God gives you gives us steadfast feet. That even though a lie is propagated maybe everywhere that we look, but but we have the strength to stand against that tide. I like that. And probably the courage to speak up. Yes. Yes. Which takes us to the second phrase, which is the work. The work. Now, what do you what can you do? Easy. First, share the show. Do it. Tell grandma. Tell grandma, tell grandpa. I don't know why you only have just one grandparent. I don't know why either. Right. Tell mom, dad, sister, cousins, friends. Get the word out. Get your own little network together of people that you you spread this word out to. and Get it out to them. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Another thing you can do, take a look at some of the resources that we that were instrumental in us putting this this episode together. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, you got the, the questions Christians hope no one will ask by Mark Middleberg. Great book. Uh you got a book by Norm Geisler and Frank Turk called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. Highly recommend that. If you're interested in some of the stuff we were talking about with racism, look at the history of nations and race uh, at truthunedited.com. Also can use The Case for the Creator by Lee Strobel, another phenomenal book. You know, we got some we got some resources that, that can be used there. And as always, we'll put links on our website at truthfullyarmed.com. If you're on your desktop, go to the site and then on the main menu, select podcast and then select show notes from the drop down menu and look for the broadcast date of this show. And you should find the link resources that we just mentioned. If, however, you're on mobile platform, which I personally think is way easier, Mm -hmm. then go to the episode notes on the platform you're listening on right now and scroll down to where you see the link entitled show notes and additional resources. Click that link and it'll take you directly to our site and the page that has the links for this particular episode. And we'll also add, we've mentioned things like The Origin of Species and uh, The God Delusion. We'll put links to those books in too. Oh, yeah, and Michael Behe's book. Okay. Yeah, we'll, we'll include those links as well. Yep. Uh, and remember, some of those those links might be what we call affiliate links, which means a small portion of any purchase made using them will go back to help support this show. And then finally, here's the last thing that you can do, and this is very important. Remind yourself of what Scripture teaches us. Which is, we are never alone. We're not fighting this war alone, right? Right, we're not. You know, God mm. has promised to never leave us. And we have a community of believers all over the country and a loving God who intervenes on our behalf. That's true. Because it's rough out here. It is. The struggle is real. Yeah. this is It act- keeps evolving. <laughs> <laughs> I'll admit, though, this is, this is even though I, I adamantly push back against the idea of evolution. Right. It is really a struggle because it's everywhere. Right. And you've, you've got to face it head on. I mean, there was a couple of times that I remember coming to you and I was like, what do I do with this? This actually seems like a pretty legitimate argument or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, and you got to walk back through you. You've got to, you got to do the work because it's a constant onslaught of ideas that set themselves up against God and try to convince you like you're stupid. Right. I absolutely agree. Now, the good thing is that one day will come when we'll get to know truly like we're known. 
that we won't have to be berated and beset on all sides by this nonsense to try to trip us up and convince us in our hearts and minds that there's no place for God. Or that we came from amoebas. Right. But until then, we are deployed on this dystopian rock by our savior in chief, the very one that commissioned us on a seesaw. That's right. We're on a combat search and rescue mission here, people. And be advised, the hostages we're after are likely to be hostile towards us. But we still gotta go get them. Now our task and order is simple. We're to search for and rescue anyone that can be sympathetic to Christ, but is currently held hostage under Satan's deception. And make no mistake, we will be operating in a hostile environment, but the rules of engagement are clear. Listen to me, you take fire, you give fire. And I need you to do me a favor. Keep your head on a swivel out there. Stay frosty, stay faithful, and above all, stay in the fight. That means do not give up, because we're counting on you. You ain't alone out there. We're fighting right next to you, and we'll see you out there again fighting on the front line. 10-4.